Namaste and good evening to all of you. It is my intention tonight as a bridge between the satsangs of previous weeks and what is coming next in the teachings of the school. It is my intention to first of all do a lecture, a satsang, on the relevance and importance of anahata in the spiritual practice, in yoga in particular, in our path, but in spiritual practice in general, because this is often misunderstood and it is exaggerated one way or another, like too much and then it becomes caricatural, or too little and then it becomes very problematic. And um, from the standpoint of the practice of yoga, from the standpoint of the chakras themselves, I would want to make you understand what is at stake here, what, how this influences your evolution, your practice. On one hand, we can simply start by stating that anahata seems, in a way, to be like a paradigm of spiritual paths or evolution, like if you have anahata, you are a spiritual person and you are on a spiritual path. And conversely, if you are on a spiritual path and practicing spirituality, then you must have some anahata. As you are going to see, this is actually not true as a statement, because anahata is not sahasrara. By definition, if we want to make a spiritual path as black and white, spirituality is sahasrara. The definition of spirituality in Kundalini Yoga is that your Kundalini Shakti is rising along the spine all the way to crown chakra where Shiva unites with Shakti. If your Kundalini Chakra rises to Vishuddha Chakra, it may be a great thing for your life, but you don't reach enlightenment. That's not Nirvana. That's not the spiritual realization. If your, Manip if your Kundalini Shakti rises to Manipura Chakra, it can be a great thing for your life, but it's not necessarily spirituality. If you want to put spirituality as black and white, like spirituality 100%, that's Sahasrara. Therefore, Anahata, where does Anahata come into this picture? If your Kundalini Shakti raises to Anahata, and you have an overwhelming love or whatever comes from this Anahata, then does this mean spirituality? See, most people are tempted to say yes. In fact, it is only a partial answer. And um, while there is an echo appearing, so kill the echo. They want me to speak like in echo voices like this. So, again, spirituality can be without anahata, although as I'm going to show you here tonight, it may produce many problems. And at the same time, anahata is not connected necessarily to spirituality. 
Like for example, just to anticipate, there is a dimension of Anahata Chakra related with sensuality. Almost a sick sensuality can come out of Anahata Chakra. And some people can become almost obsessed with touching and kinesthetic things and sensuality all the way to the pathological and no, no spirituality will result from that. For example, the different forms of mysticism that work on Anahata Chakra a lot, they are aware of this, that Anahata Chakra has different sides. In Kashmir, Anahata Chakra is like two lotus flowers, one which goes up and one which goes down. And there is a dark half of Anahata, so to speak. It's not dark. But there is a non-spiritual part of Anahata, and then there is a spiritual part of Anahata. So, we are contaminated. We, this pattern has been created by Christianity, by the devotional parts of Judaism, of Islam, especially the Sufis, and other bhakti-based religions, which have created this pattern, that automatically if you are spiritual, there must be lots of love, devotion, surrender, and so on. This is essentially not true, although tonight I am speaking in favor of Anahata, and I am advising you warmly to include Anahata in your spiritual life, and you'll understand soon why, but as a principle... As a matter of principle, this is not true in itself. For example, teachers like Gurdjieff, they have confronted this. Gurdjieff, the famous, controversial, notorious, provocative Gurdjieff, George Ivanovich Gurdjieff, when he came to the West, he stood exactly against this because there had not been teachers coming from the East so much at the time when Gurdjieff came to Western Europe. And then Western Europe was mostly, they had seen only Christian monks and nuns. They thought that the Catholic Church means spirituality, period. And therefore, if you were like St. Francis of Assisi, and if you were like St. Teresa of Avila, you are supposed to be spiritual. And Gurdjieff was not at all like those people. Gurdjieff smoked cigars, he drank vodka, he ate meat. He was very muladharistic in many ways. He was a Capricorn astrologically, and he did a lot of uh, muladharistic actions. He loved to cook and to throw parties where he was serving his own food. He was like a great chef and all that stuff. And he had a complete disdain towards stupidity. Like Gurdjieff insulted people to the face, making them like you react like a triple idiot. You are like an imbecile. You are like, he was completely manipuristically rude. And basically, it's exactly like you say, I am no saint. But I am. But a different kind of saint than these ones which you have seen around in your culture. I am a saint coming from... Afghanistan, from Central Asia, from Tibet, from other spiritual methods, and therefore my methods are Manipuristic. The methods of Gurdjieff, his famous fourth way, they are methods which move, which connect Manipura 
with Sahasrara. There is not much Anahata. Gurdjieff could understand Anahata and the mystical path. And when he was asked, what about Christianity? What about Jesus? What about... He said, yeah, there is a real Christianity somewhere there in the East, but it's not this one that you guys are practicing here in the West. So by this, he meant the different branches, the old branches of Christianity, the Greek Orthodox, the Armenian the Georgian different branches of Christianity, which follow much older patterns, and they are very backwards and old-fashioned. The Egyptian Coptic, the Syrian Maronite, all the Middle Eastern Christian denominations, which are indeed very different than what was happening in France, for example, because Gurdjieff lived in France most of his life most of his later life. So what I'm trying to say here, like Gurdjieff, for example, simply said, if somebody is stupid, they have to pay. They have to pay. Like, he had no respect towards stupidity. In Christianity, you would say, if somebody is poor in spirit, you should have compassion towards them, because they are poor in spirit, but maybe their prayer is very pure, they are pure children of God, and uh, maybe they will reach God. God has mercy even on the people that are stupid. Intelligence is not necessarily an instrument to reach God. On the contrary, we see people that have a diabolic intelligence. So sometimes intelligence is a real bad instrument, and it makes people fall off the path. Gurdjieff was not coming from that place. He simply said, if I'm smart, and you are stupid, you pay. That's a policy on Manipura. Like Gurdjieff was selling carpets. At some point he sold some painted birds, some falsified birds. And if the fools would pay a hundred dollars for those, hallelujah, you know, it's like, it's your stupidity. You are ready to pay a hundred dollars for a painted bird. That simply means I'm intelligent and you are stupid and that's the law of nature. The big fish is eating the small fish. That's how the nature exists. So, tough luck. Pray that in your next life you are born with a great intelligence and you are not a fool anymore. No, there was no this sort of Christian mercy or something in the teachings of Gurdjieff. Some people hated and despised him for that. And some people considered him a great master, depending if they fitted or not with his style. Some peculiar traditions and philosophies also differ on this. For example, in traditional Japan, until late in the 20th century, there did not exist a word for love. Like a man and a woman could not tell each other, I love you. The word for which was used for love was a word which meant duty. It's my duty to you. That means I love you. I have a duty to you. Like if I'm married to you, it's my duty to protect you, to provide for you. That's my love. And in a certain way, it's very hard to understand. I remember when reading a novel of the Japanese culture, that some European guy, in combination with a Japanese woman, he said, but she doesn't love me. Like this woman has a relationship to me, where she doesn't love me. And the other woman who was talking to him, he said, are you insane? This woman would die for you right now. Japanese style, kamikaze. 
she would die for you. Why isn't that love? Because it is. But it is love from Manipura. It's another kind. It's still love. It can go to self-sacrifice. And it's loyalty. And duty. And every, but it's not that emotional thing that we call love. It doesn't have that softness in it. It's love in another way. And therefore, for example, in the Japanese tradition, no, in the Zen traditions, it's hara, 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 hara. Manipura, 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 manipura. Even in Zazen, they start by meditating on hara. They breathe through the hara. They do. And when you finish 30 years of Zazen, you have a, a manipura as big as the house. What about Anahata? It's a city in China somewhere. We don't know where Anahata is. There is no Anahata in their practice. So the enlightened beings on this path, they had a huge Manipura, most of them being terrible martial artists as well as Zen meditators. They had a formidable Ajna Chakra by focusing perfectly. And those who reached the top, they reached Sahasrara. Manipura, Ajna, Sahasrara. That's a completely different person from Francis of Assisi. Still very enlightened, but a very different person. So, different traditions who have not been influenced by this course of action, and according to the DNA of different populations on earth, they have been more or less gifted. For example, when they do Vipassana in Bangkok, the Goenka Vipassana, they do it the Manipuristic Thai style. When they do the same Goenka Vipassana in India, like in the famous documentary, serving time, serving, doing time, doing Vipassana or something, uh, in the end of a Vipassana 10-day dry re retreat of meditation, they do a session of kirtans and bhajans, like you just did. Kirtans and bhajans are unacceptable in the, when you go east. But in India, everything goes with kirtans and bhajans. Because the Indians have an organic need for anahata. It's like a drug. It's like a vitamin which they need. If you do things without anahata... It's like you are a flop, you are a fiasco. It's not the real thing. It must have some anahata. If you go in Japan, it's completely unnecessary. Or places of China or Korea or something. It's completely unnecessary. Therefore, even people, nations are different. And we know that different countries are very, very different in this way. No, just as a parenthesis, how many Italian or Greek Mediterranean Christian saints have there been in the last 2,000 years? Hundreds, thousands. How many Christian saints did come from Denmark? Zero. Why? Because for the Danish people, very often Anahata is a city in China. And if you ask them to go on the path of Anahata, it's like, beg your pardon? How does one do that? Because it's in our village, nobody does that. In some countries, 
It, it doesn't always go by north and south. For example, there is a large amount of Anahata in the Russian culture. And when you see Ostrov and other movies, you see that people who lived far up north near Finland, they were practicing the virtues of Anahata Chakra very, very well. Although they were blonde, northern people. But it depends on a lot of other factors. Culture, language, national soul, egregore, geographical area, traditions, and a lot of other things which are conditioning people. And that's why the access to Anahata Chakra is very different from country to country and from group to group. And for some people it goes like this, and for some people it's like trying, 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 and not really hitting it. And then you see some Swedish person who chooses to go and live in Italy and says, Italians are according to my heart. I don't know why when I go to Sweden, I'm like dead. It's like I feel that I'm getting buried alive. When I go to Italy, I'm breathing. No, because a fitting or not fitting in some of these chakra environments. Therefore, not only teachers like Gurdjieff, and also not only lineages, like again, Zen Buddhism. In Zen Buddhism, you imagine the reaction of the samurai of Japan. The samurai considered themselves spiritual. Samurai was Bushido, and Bushido meant to serve Buddha. And it was Karma Yoga for enlightenment. That's why the samurai were ready to die, because they were doing it for enlightenment and for Buddha. That's why the rules of the samurai were so extreme. Because originally samurai was a form of karma yoga, like the kshatriyas of India and like the knights of the round table and the other types of knights of the Christian European culture. And imagine the reaction of the samurai when Christian preachers came to Japan and they said, you should forgive your enemy. They laughed their heads off. It's like, what does it mean that you forgive your enemy? Your enemy has to be utterly crushed. The one who forgives his enemy is the most idiot in the world because the enemy will stand up and try to stab you again because the enemy is an asshole. And if you forgive them, they just get grudgy and they try again. So the only thing to do with an enemy is to crush them until they cannot move anymore. You have to annihilate the enemy. That's the policy of Manipura Chakra. On Manipura Chakra, the enemy has to be wiped out. Jesus is, from the standpoint of Manipura, he is like a masochist. Because he says, forgive your enemy. And then you know what's going to happen. He will come again, the bastard. No? You, you think that if you forgive the enemy, he will feel ashamed. And he say, oh, how nice of you. You could have wiped me out, but you actually forgave me. Only if the enemy also has some anahata... He might get a glimpse of awareness and say, oh, bugger, you know, this man is more noble than me and has forgiven me. But an enemy without Anahata will simply try again. And this time he will try better because he knows what he did wrong the first time. So forgiving your enemy is almost like a crucifixion. You are asking to be crucified when you forgive your enemy because your enemy will try again and better. And thus... Uh, Different traditions 
they have their own thing. For example, the Jewish original tradition, which is very Manipuristic, they could not accept the teachings of Jesus. Because the law was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And now Jesus comes and says, forgive 70 times 7. It isn't like if somebody kills your child, don't you want an eye for an eye? You are supposed to forgive them. Who can do that? Isn't that utopian, mad, insane? Like who can live by such lofty standards? Of course, there are examples And when people see such examples, they get goosebumps. They are like electrified, like, oh my God, did somebody really do that? And then people realize, I don't know if I can live by such standards. You know, it's like, it's like it's too much sometimes. There are philosophies which are exactly like this. The the first one which comes to mind is the famous libertarianism of uh, Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand... Russian origin, moved to America, philosopher, born as an Aquarian, as an air sign, so you'd think she came from a place with a lot of Anahata, is one of the most Manipuristic, modern, political philosophers that there is. And any one of you who is an adept of it, or any one of you who will read and study the philosophy called libertarianism, libertarianism is totally on Manipura. And it basically says... Pity for the weak is just a weakness that you have. It's completely idiotic to have pity for the weak because it encourages the weak to stay weak and to ask for more pity. And therefore you should always be tough to the weak and either they die or they stand up and they start fending for themselves. It's this kind of philosophy, which is a very ultra-capitalistic type of philosophy, focused on the ego, focused on Manipura. Many of the people who are these anti-government people in the United States and in the West, they are libertarians, because they think that the government keeps them on Zvadistana, and all this democracy is keeping people weak, no? And then this libertarian thing is at least let's have some Manipura, let's have some balls. In a certain way, they would think that the democratic part of Hillary Clinton is vadistanistic and crowd-pleasing, and the Manipura of Donald Trump is uh, rude, but uh, it's a sort of a, it's a bit of a step forward, like let's have some balls, let's have some spine. In both of these ones, Anahata is not there. It's not present. Not at all. And thus, Anahata is a very challenging point in the modern society. And I always tell to people, look at it, compare it with a hundred years ago. Even if you look at some Hollywood movies which are done 50, 70 years ago, you will see immediately that the modern world starts losing the Anahata components in its evolution. People have less and less Anahata. It's true. It often starts losing Manipura. Because the great capitalists that have their consortiums and run the world with the corporate and everything, they want you on Svadistana. As long as you drink your Coca-Cola and go and watch an Iron Maiden concert, stay on Svadistana, consume, be a good consumer, smoke some marijuana, get really confused, dream that you are rich or whatever, 
and in the end you got nothing. You die and you've got nothing. But you have been an obedient slave. If you are a libertarian, at least you'll have some money put and you'll fight back. And then you are an uncomfortable citizen who is trying to assert his individuality. So generally, the rulers, the powers that be, they try to keep the world population on Svadistana as much as possible. Because Svadistana is very easy to control. Zvadistanistic people, they have voted George W. Bush, who was and is a total moron, not once, but two times in a row. People thought that first time it was a mistake, but heck no, they voted him the second time as well. You know, when you vote a moron to be your leader, then it means you are worse than a moron. You yourself. No, the population is on Zvadistana, it just takes propaganda, manipulation, advertising, PR, and whatever, and people react to it. That's why, of course, the world is also losing Manipura. People like uh, Rockefeller and, uh, you know, the owner of the Toyota or whatever, they have Manipura. But they live in a world which is very, very different from the world most of you live in. It's a different level of, like, when you've got a hundred million plus dollars in your account, a lot of things are very, very different than what most of the people do. Because power has a different, gives a different dimension to the human life, and their money and other things, they are pure power. So in this way, yes, even Manipura is not very cultivated. Like you look to the Japanese culture, most of the Japanese teenagers are a bunch of suicidal emos, wimps. Where are the samurais of Japan? That country 400 years ago, even 100 years ago, was producing kamikazes. Where are the kamikazes of Japan today? When the Fukushima nuclear disaster happened, the, the retirees, the old people of Japan, they went to the government and they said, we are old will be dead anyway in 10 years, let us go in the nuclear reactor barehanded and clean it. We will die in 12 hours, but at least we can stop the nuclear reactor. Like hundreds of retirees from Japan, they asked to be allowed to go in the nuclear reactors of Fukushima and clean them, stop them, because nothing else can go in there. Of course, they could not accept it because now we are politically correct. Probably a hundred years ago, if they asked the emperor, the emperor would have blessed them with some cherry flowers and told them, yes, go and save Japan. Glory be to you. No, today it's like, okay, the West is looking at us. We can't do that. The whole world is looking. And they said, thank you, regretfully, no. But that spirit is there. That spirit on Manipura. But it's in the old generation not in the younger generations, very little in the younger generations. So even Manipura declines, but Anahata declines catastrophically. It's less and less understood. And um, paradox, that's very paradoxical and problematic, because Anahata is one of the four basic elements. When you study astrology or basic metaphysics, people's four temperaments are earth, water, fire, and air. So air, which corresponds to the heart chakra, is one of the four basic elements. You can't have the basic structure of the body and of the nature by having a weak air element. 
when the air element is weak, you are predisposed to diseases, to all sorts of things. And therefore, it's really paradoxical because you'd expect that the human civilization tries to find a way, at least in which every man and every woman is balanced. I have 25% earth, 25% water, 25% fire, and 25% air. And that's the path to happiness. That's the path to harmony. That's the path to health. That's the path to wisdom. And that's the path to a higher level. It's compared in India with a cow. The cow has four legs. And if one leg of the cow is shorter, then the cow cannot stand properly. Like a table or like a bed. It needs to have four equal legs. And only when you have four equal legs, then the fifth element, the ether, from Vishuddha comes and sits on top of those. This is the symbolism in Indian mysticism. And therefore, it's, it's expected that, hey, the air element and Anahata Chakra is one of the foundations of the being. The truth is that nowadays, a lot of things happen from Anahata Chakra, and a lot of problems come from the lack of Anahata Chakra. And um, even India, which used to be a great example for Anahata Chakra, not the only one, don't think the Indians were the only ones, I already gave the example of Russia, and there are others, um, even India is losing it to an alarming level, like, you know, Men and women want to have children. But now if you are a little bit intelligent and well-educated in India, you don't want to have 15 children anymore because everybody knows that your country is on a ticking bomb of overpopulation. And there are already very severe problems due to simply too many people living in that space. So the people that have a university degree in India or something, they want to have one child. Maximum two. And of course, if you want to have a child and you have a bit of the primitive patriarchal instinct, you want that child to be a boy. So that he carries your name further to the next generation and whatever else. It's a primitive instinct. It's not fully logical. It's based on old rules from the old society. So what do the educated Indians do? And remember, we're talking about a hundred million people and more. Every time when a woman gets pregnant, they make an ultrasound or other tests. And if it's a girl, they perform an abortion. And then they try the Russian roulette again. No, they try until they get a boy. It's like a jackpot machine, you know, it's a coin machine. Let's try until we get a boy. And if it's a girl, flush it down the toilet. Is there anahata in this? No mystic of India would have dared to do this. If you would have asked Ramakrishna or Ram Prasad to vouch for this, they would have committed public suicide, you know, rather than to vouch for such a thing. There is no, where is Anahata? When I was in India, I was reading the newspapers when men were getting bored of their wives so that they wouldn't pay divorce expenses. They wrapped them in cellophane sprinkle them with gasoline and set them on fire. That's what you do with your wife when she's too much in India. It happened a lot, like the newspapers kept writing, again somebody 
put his wife in plastic and set her on fire. Where is the anahata? You'd expect that a nation that has a great anahata, it w- you would shudder at the mere thought of it. No, it's like pff, this is like more than accept more than unacceptable. It's like, and still, it happens. So it happens in many many other nations that have had seeds of anahata. The modern culture with all these mantras, like take care of yourself. Take care. Take care of yourself. But Jesus would never tell you, take care of yourself. If you'd meet with Jesus, he would say, take care of my brothers and sisters. What about me? I didn't eat. Yeah, it's okay. You can stay another six hours without eating. Just take care of everybody else. Ramakrishna had a rich sponsor and they gave him money to go on a pilgrimage. And Ramakrishna walked 30 kilometers towards a pilgrimage. Indians love pilgrimages. And then in an oasis, in a place of rest, they meet with other pilgrims coming from another part of India and going to some other part of India. They just cross paths. And all these people were hungry and poor. And then Ramakrishna tells to his attendant, who was having the money purse, buy food for all these people and feed them now. And the guy said, but sir... If we do this, then there is no more money for us to go on the pilgrimage. And Ramakrishna says, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. These people are hungry. Somebody has to... They gave food to a hundred people. Then Ramakrishna turned back home. He kind of forfeited his own pilgrimage, you know, because he had to give food to other people. This is... This this spirit of anahata is very difficult in modern time because modern time, especially the capitalistic culture, says you have to take care of yourself. Take care of yourself is like look up your own belly button. Is develop your own Manipura. Because we know intuitively that people that have a good Manipura, they are strong and they can take good care of themselves. And if you have a child or a younger brother or sister who is Vadistanistic, then you go like, oh my God, this child will never manage in the world. But if I'm telling my child, take care of yourself, the world is a jungle, then my child will have a good Manipura and they will somehow survive. What about their Anahata? Ah, who needs Anahata? You know, like, forget about Anahata. You need Manipura in this world. This is the tragedy of it that Anahata gets overlooked in this way. Because Manipura seems to be more important, it's actually not true. Look at the tragedy which is happening with people's immune systems. One of the biggest medical trends of modern times is that everybody has allergies. Allergies, 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 allergies. In Western Europe and North America, a child out of three or four is born allergic already. Allergies to what you wouldn't believe, from gluten to pollen, from this to nothing which existed a hundred years ago, it's there. All these allergies are related mostly with the decay of the immune system, which is coordinated by the thymus gland, which according to Ayurvedic medicine is the gland which coordinates the immune system and corresponds to Anahata Chakra. Even AIDS is a decline of the T-cells produced by the thymus gland. So even AIDS, which is uh, a paradigm of modern society, even AIDS is a decline of anahata. That's why 
Indian gurus always say a yogi with a strong anahata will never get sick with AIDS. You get sick with AIDS only when your anahata is fucked totally. Somebody with a strong anahata will have a strong thymus. The thymus gland shrivels when you are 10-12 years old and it becomes atrophied. And then in primitive countries, including in India, they found men and women who are 60 years old and they still have an active thymus. Their thymus doesn't die. While in Europe it dies at the age of 10 or 12. So anahata is really going down and that has consequences even on our health. Remember how many people in the old days did you hear that they died of tuberculosis? Tuberculosis. But of course if you have a woman and you put her in a corset and she is tight in iron like this and she has to be narrow in her shoulders and she can breathe only clavicular and the breasts go like this because she is... Of course she will make tuberculosis. If you have some poet living in a miserable room and with no food and this and that, of course they will make tuberculosis. Any tuberculosis, you see all these movies where people have tuberculosis. You can only dream if somebody put them on a helicopter and transformed them, transported them to the Shivananda Ashram or to Sri Yogendra in Bombay and they did six months of pranayama every day. Tuberculosis would be over if you did pranayama. It, all it took is pranayama. No? And you look at so many tragedies where people slowly died of tuberculosis because they killed their anahata chakra. They killed their heart chakra. That's why having problems with the heart chakra is a big problem also medically, physiologically, fundamentally, because I'm telling you again, the air element is one of the basic elements of the human physiology. It's one of the constitutive elements of the prakriti, of the body and nature. Not to mention that this psychologically and emotionally deprives us of something very important. And that's why we look into this anahata, how necessary it is. And the first thing which I want to share with you is that generally we see in humanity that most of the spiritual teachers, they preached an evolution, again, except the Zen Buddhists of Japan and a few others, they preached an evolution that moves towards Anahata. Many of my teachers told me, look around, which are the signs of times? When you look at spirituality in the last 2,000 years, where does it go? What does influence mostly the earth? Because we see a world teacher like Jesus, and all he preaches is that although obviously he knows about Sahasrara, nevertheless he preaches an existential mode on Anahata. Anahata is being preached, and just to make a long story short, because we started a bit late, just to make a long story short, most of the great metaphysicians of the 20th century, they claim that this hides a very peculiar truth. And that truth is that Anahata Chakra is like a landmark for the whole humanity in this cycle. As you know, or some of you know, and some of you will hear by watching other satsangs 
and other lectures about this. Humanity, according to Indian and Tibetan gurus, is today in Kali Yuga, in the fourth quarter of a four-quarter cycle, towards the end of a cosmic cycle of about 26,000 years long, and we are close to the end. If close means 50 years or 20 years or 250 years, that's very little importance in the big picture. We are close to the end of a big cycle. This is called in language of yoga the end of Kali Yuga. So we are close to the end of Kali Yuga. And the end of Kali Yuga means like graduation day. It's like in Europe when it's the 15th of June and the kids finish the school year. And then there come the summer holidays. And next year, you are when you come back in September, school is starting and you are in the next grade. So... The end of Kali Yuga is when you move to the next grade. And when you move to the next grade, you need to have the grades which confirm that you can move to the next grade. According to most of the great metaphors. Namaste and good evening to all of you. It is my intention tonight as a bridge between the satsangs of previous weeks and what is coming next in the teachings of the school. It is my intention to first of all do a lecture, a satsang, on the relevance and importance of anahata in the spiritual practice, in yoga in particular, in our path, but in spiritual practice in general because this is often misunderstood and it is exaggerated one way or another, like too much and then it becomes caricatural, or too little and then it becomes very problematic. And um, from the standpoint of the practice of yoga, from the standpoint of the chakras themselves, I would want to make you understand what is at stake here, what, how this influences your evolution, your practice. On one hand, we can simply start by stating that anahata seems, in a way, to be like a paradigm of spiritual paths or evolution. Like, if you have anahata, you are a spiritual person and you are on a spiritual path. And conversely, if you are on a spiritual path and practicing spirituality, then you must have some anahata. As you are going to see, this is actually not true as a statement, because anahata is not sahasrara. By definition, if we want to make a spiritual path as black and white, spirituality is sahasrara. The definition of spirituality in Kundalini Yoga is that your kundalini shakti is rising along the spine all the way to crown chakra where Shiva unites with shakti. If your kundalini chakra rises to vishuddha chakra, it may be a great thing for your life, but you don't reach enlightenment. That's not nirvana. That's not the spiritual realization. If your, mani, if your kundalini shakti rises to manipura chakra, it can be a great thing for your life, but it's not necessarily spirituality. If you want to put spirituality as black and white, 
like spirituality 100%, that's Sahasrara. Therefore, Anahata, where does Anahata come into this picture? If your Kundalini Shakti raises to Anahata, and you have an overwhelming love or whatever comes from this Anahata, then does this mean spirituality? See, most people are tempted to say yes. In fact, it is only a partial answer. And um, while there is an echo appearing, so kill the echo. They want me to speak like in echo voices like this. So, again, spirituality can be without anahata, although as I'm going to show you here tonight, it may produce many problems. And at the same time, anahata is not connected necessarily to spirituality. Like for example, just to anticipate, there is a dimension of anahata chakra related with sensuality. Almost a sick sensuality can come out of anahata chakra. And some people can become almost obsessed with touching and kinesthetic things and sensuality all the way to the pathological and no, no spirituality will result from that. For example, the different forms of mysticism that work on Anahata Chakra a lot, they are aware of this, that Anahata Chakra has different sides. In Kashmir, Anahata Chakra is like two lotus flowers, one which goes up and one which goes down. And there is a dark half of Anahata, so to speak. It's not dark. But there is a non-spiritual part of Anahata, and then there is a spiritual part of Anahata. So, we are contaminated. We, this pattern has been created by Christianity, by the devotional parts of Judaism, of Islam, especially the Sufis, and other bhakti-based religions, which have created this pattern, that automatically if you are spiritual, there must be lots of love, devotion, surrender, and so on. This is essentially not true, although tonight I am speaking in favor of Anahata, and I am advising you warmly to include Anahata in your spiritual life, and you'll understand soon why, but as a principle, as a matter of principle, this is not true in itself. For example, teachers like Gurdjieff, they have confronted this. Gurdjieff, the famous, controversial, notorious, provocative Gurdjieff, George Ivanovich Gurdjieff, when he came to the West, he stood exactly against this because there had not been teachers coming from the East so much at the time when Gurdjieff came to Western Europe. And then Western Europe was mostly... They had seen only Christian monks and nuns. They thought that the Catholic Church means spirituality, period. And therefore, if you were like St. Francis of Assisi, and if you were like St. Teresa of Avila, you are supposed to be spiritual. And Gurdjieff was not at all like those people. Gurdjieff smoked cigars, 
he drank vodka, he ate meat, he was very muladharistic in many ways, he was a Capricorn astrologically, and he did a lot of uh, muladharistic actions, he loved to cook and to throw parties where he was serving his own food, he was like a great chef, and all that stuff, and he had a complete disdain towards stupidity. Like Gurdjieff insulted people to the face, making them like you react like a triple idiot. You are like an imbecile. You are like he was completely manipuristically rude. And basically, it's exactly like you say, I am no saint. But I am. But a different kind of saint than these ones which you have seen around in your culture. I am a saint coming from. Afghanistan, from Central Asia, from Tibet, from other spiritual methods, and therefore my methods are Manipuristic. The methods of Gurdjieff, his famous fourth way, they are methods which move, which connect Manipura with Sahasrara. There is not much Anahata. Gurdjieff could understand Anahata and the mystical paths, and when he was asked what about Christianity? What about Jesus? What about... He said, yeah, there is a real Christianity somewhere there in the East, but it's not this one that you guys are practicing here in the West. So by this, he meant the different branches, the old branches of Christianity, the Greek Orthodox, the Armenian, the Georgian, different branches of Christianity which follow much older patterns, and they are very backwards and old-fashioned. The Egyptian Coptic, the Syrian Maronite, all the Middle Eastern Christian denominations, which are indeed very different than what was happening in France, for example, because Gurdjieff lived in France most of his life, most of his later life. So what I'm trying to say here, like... Gurdjieff, for example, simply said, if somebody is stupid, they have to pay. They have to pay. Like, he had no respect towards stupidity. In Christianity, you would say, if somebody is poor in spirit, you should have compassion towards them, because they are poor in spirit, but maybe their prayer is very pure, they are pure children of God, and uh, maybe they will reach God. God has mercy even on the people that are stupid. Intelligence is not necessarily an instrument to reach God. On the contrary, we see people that have a diabolic intelligence. So sometimes intelligence is a real bad instrument and it makes people fall off the path. Gurdjieff was not coming from that place. He simply said, if I'm smart and you are stupid, you pay. That's a policy on Manipura. Like Gurdjieff was selling carpets. At some point he, sainted, he sold some painted birds, some falsified birds. And if the fools would pay a hundred dollars for those, hallelujah, you know, it's like, it's your stupidity. You are ready to pay a hundred dollars for a painted bird. That simply means I'm intelligent and you are stupid and that's the law of nature. The big fish is eating the small fish. That's how the nature exists. So, tough luck. Pray that in your next life you are born with a great intelligence and you are not a fool anymore. No, there was no this sort of Christian mercy or something in the teachings of Gurdjieff. Some people hated and despised him for that, and some people considered him a great master, depending if they fitted 
or not with his style. Some peculiar traditions and philosophies also differ on this. For example, in traditional Japan, until late in the 20th century, there did not exist a word for love. Like a man and a woman could not tell each other, I love you. The word for which was used for love was a word which meant duty. It's my duty to you. That means I love you. I have a duty to you. Like if I'm married to you, it's my duty to protect you, to provide for you. That's my love. And in a certain way, it's very hard to understand. I remember when reading a novel of the Japanese culture, that some European guy, in combination with a Japanese woman, he said, but she doesn't love me. Like this woman has a relationship to me. Well, she doesn't love me. And the other woman who was talking to him, he said, are you insane? This woman would die for you right now. Japanese style, kamikaze. She would die for you. Why isn't that love? Because it is. But it is love from Manipura. It's another kind. It's still love. It can go to self-sacrifice. And it's loyalty. And duty. And, but it's not that emotional thing that we call love. It doesn't have that softness in it. It's love in another way. And therefore, for example, in the Japanese tradition, no, in the Zen traditions, it's hara, 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 hara. Manipura, 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 manipura. Even in Zazen, they start by meditating on hara. They breathe through the hara, they do. And when you finish 30 years of Zazen, you have a manipura as big as the house. What about Anahata? It's a city in China somewhere. We don't know where Anahata is. There is no Anahata in their practice. So the enlightened beings on this path, they had a huge Manipura, most of them being terrible martial artists as well as Zen meditators. They had a formidable Ajna Chakra by focusing perfectly. And those who reached the top, they reached Sahasrara. Manipura, Ajna, Sahasrara. That's a completely different person from Francis of Assisi. Still very enlightened, but a very different person. So, different traditions who have not been influenced by this course of action, and according to the DNA of different populations on earth, they have been more or less gifted. For example, when they do Vipassana in Bangkok, the Goenka Vipassana, they do it the Manipuristic Thai style. When they do the same Goenka Vipassana in India, like in the famous documentary, serving time, serving, doing time, doing Vipassana or something, uh, in the end of a Vipassana 10-day dry re retreat of meditation, they do a session of Kirtans and Bhajans, like you just did. Kirtans and Bhajans are unacceptable in the, when you go east. But in India, everything goes with kirtans and bhajans. Because the Indians have an organic need for anahata. It's like a drug. It's like a vitamin which they need. If you do things without anahata, 
it's like you are a flop, you are a fiasco. It's not the real thing. It must have some anahata. If you go in Japan, it's completely unnecessary. Or places of China or Korea or something, it's completely unnecessary. Therefore, even people, nations are different and we know that different countries are very, very different in this way. Oh, just as a parenthesis, how many Italian or Greek Mediterranean Christian saints have there been in the last 2,000 years? Hundreds, thousands. How many Christian saints did come from Denmark? Zero. Why? Because for the Danish people, very often, Anahata is a city in China. And if you ask them to go on the path of Anahata, it's like, beg your pardon? How does one do that? Because it's in our village, nobody does that. In some countries, it, no, it doesn't always go by north and south. For example, there is a large amount of Anahata in the Russian culture. And when you see Ostrov and other movies, you see that people who lived far up north near Finland, they were practicing the virtues of Anahata Chakra very, very well, although they were blonde northern people. But it depends on a lot of other factors. Culture, language, national soul, egregore, geographical area, traditions, and a lot of other things which are conditioning people. And that's why the access to Anahata Chakra is very different from country to country and from group to group. And for some people it goes like this. And for some people it's like trying, 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 trying and not really hitting it. And then you see some Swedish person who chooses to go and live in Italy and says, Italians are according to my heart. I don't know why, when I go to Sweden, I'm like dead. It's like I feel that I'm getting buried alive. When I go to Italy, I'm breathing. No, because of fitting or not fitting in some of these chakra environments. Therefore, not only teachers like Gurdjieff, and also not only lineages, like again, Zen Buddhism. In Zen Buddhism, you imagine the reaction of the samurai of Japan, the samurai considered themselves spiritual. Samurai was Bushido, and Bushido meant to serve Buddha. And it was karma yoga for enlightenment. That's why the samurai were ready to die, because they were doing it for enlightenment and for Buddha. That's why the rules of the samurai were so extreme. Because originally samurai was a form of karma yoga, like the kshatriyas of India and like the knights of the round table and the other types of knights of the Christian European culture. And imagine the reaction of the samurai when Christian preachers came to Japan and they said, you should forgive your enemy. They laughed their heads off. It's like, what does it mean that you forgive your enemy? Your enemy has to be utterly crushed. The one who forgives his enemy is the most idiot in the world because the enemy will stand up and try to stab you again because the enemy is an asshole. And if you forgive them, they just get grudgy and they try again. So the only thing to do with an enemy is to crush them until they cannot move anymore. You have to annihilate the enemy. 
That's the policy of Manipura Chakra. On Manipura Chakra, the enemy has to be wiped out. Jesus is, from the standpoint of Manipura, he's like a masochist. Because he says, forgive your enemy. And then you know what's going to happen. He will come again, the bastard. No? You, you think that if you forgive the enemy, he will feel ashamed. And you say, oh, how nice of you. You could have wiped me out, but you actually forgave me. Only if the enemy also has some anahata, he might get a glimpse of awareness and say, oh, bugger, you know, this man is more noble than me and has forgiven me. But an enemy without anahata will simply try again. And this time he will try better because he knows what he did wrong the first time. So forgiving your enemy is almost like a crucifixion. You are asking to be crucified when you forgive your enemy because your enemy will try again and better. And thus, uh, different traditions, they have their own thing. For example, the Jewish original tradition, which is very Manipuristic, they could not accept the teachings of Jesus. Because the law was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And now Jesus comes and says, forgive 70 times 7. It isn't like if somebody kills your child, don't you want an eye for an eye? You are supposed to forgive them. Who can do that? Isn't that utopian, mad, insane? Like, who can live by such lofty standards? Of course, there are examples. And when people see such examples, they get goosebumps. They are like electrified, like, oh my God, did somebody really do that? And then people realize, I don't know if I can live by such standards. You know, it's like, it's like it's too much sometimes. There are philosophies which are exactly like this. The, the first one which comes to mind is the famous libertarianism of uh, Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand, Russian origin, moved to America, philosopher, born as an Aquarian, as an air sign, so you'd think she came from a place with a lot of Anahata, is one of the most Manipuristic, modern, political philosophers that there is. And any one of you who is an adept of it, or any one of you who will read and study the philosophy called libertarianism, libertarianism is totally on Manipura. And it basically says, pity for the weak is just a weakness that you have. It's completely idiotic to have pity for the weak, because it encourages the weak to stay weak and to ask for more pity. And therefore you should always be tough to the weak and either they die or they stand up and they start fending for themselves. It's this kind of philosophy, no? which is a very an ultra-capitalistic type of philosophy focused on the ego, focused on Manipura. Many of the people who are these anti-government people in United States and in the West, they are libertarians. Because they think that the government keeps them on Zvadistana, and all this democracy is keeping people weak. No? And then this libertarian thing is at least let's have some Manipura. Let's have some balls. In a certain way, they would think that the democratic part of Hillary Clinton is Zvadistanistic and crowd-pleasing, and the Manipura of Donald Trump is uh, rude, but uh, it's a sort of a, it's a bit of a step forward, like let's have some balls, let's have some spine. In both of these ones, Anahata is not there. 
It's not present. Not at all. And thus, Anahata is a very challenging point in the modern society. And I always tell to people, look at it, compare it with a hundred years ago. Even if you look at some Hollywood movies which are done 50, 70 years ago, you will see immediately that the modern world starts losing the Anahata components in its evolution. People have less and less Anahata. It's true. It often starts losing Manipura because the great capitalists that have their consortiums and run the world with the corporate and everything, they want you on Svadhisthana. As long as you drink your Coca-Cola and go and watch an Iron Maiden concert, stay on Svadhisthana, consume, be a good consumer, smoke some marijuana, get really confused, dream that you are rich or whatever, and in the end you got nothing. You die and you've got nothing. But you have been an obedient slave. If you are a libertarian, at least you'll have some Manipura and you'll fight back. And then you are an incomfortable citizen who is trying to assert his individuality. So generally, the rulers, the powers that be, they try to keep the world population on Svadistana as much as possible. Because Svadistana is very easy to control. Svadistanistic people, they have voted George W. Bush, who was and is a total moron, not once, but two times in a row. People thought that first time it was a mistake, but heck no, they voted him the second time as well. You know, when you vote a moron to be your leader, then it means you are worse than a moron. You yourself. No, the population is on Svadistana, it just takes propaganda, manipulation, advertising, PR, and whatever, and people react to it. That's why, of course, the world is also losing Manipura. People like uh, Rockefeller and, uh, you know, the owner of the Toyota or whatever, they have Manipura. But they live in a world which is very, very different from the world most of you live in. It's a different level of, like, when you've got a hundred million plus dollars in your account, a lot of things are very, very different than what most of the people do. Because power has a different, gives a different dimension to the human life, and their money and other things, they are pure power. So in this way, yes, even Manipura is not very cultivated. Like you look to the Japanese culture, most of the Japanese teenagers are a bunch of suicidal emos, wimps. Where are the samurais of Japan? That country 400 years ago, even 100 years ago, was producing kamikazes. Where are the kamikazes of Japan today? When the Fukushima nuclear disaster happened, the, the retirees, the old people of Japan, they went to the government and they said, we are old will be dead anyway in 10 years. Let us go in the nuclear reactor barehanded and clean it. We will die in 12 hours, but at least we can stop the nuclear reactor. Like hundreds of retirees from Japan, they asked to be allowed to go in the nuclear reactors of Fukushima and clean them, stop them, because nothing else can go in there. Of course, they could not accept it because now we are politically correct. Probably a hundred years ago, if they asked the emperor, 
the emperor would have blessed them with some cherry flowers and told them, yes, go and save Japan. Glory be to you. No, today it's like, okay, the West is looking at us, we can't do that, the whole world is looking. And they said, thank you, regretfully, no. But that spirit is there, that spirit on Manipura. But it's in the older generation, not in the younger generations. Very little in the younger generations. So even Manipura declines, but Anahata declines catastrophically. It's less and less understood. And um, paradox, that's very paradoxical and problematic because Anahata is one of the four basic elements. When you study astrology or basic metaphysics, people's four temperaments are earth, water, fire, and air. So air, which corresponds to the heart chakra, is one of the four basic elements. You can't have the basic structure of the body and of the nature by having a weak air element. When the air element is weak, you are predisposed to diseases, to all sorts of things. And therefore, it's really paradoxical because you'd expect that the human civilization tries to find a way, at least in which every man and every woman is balanced. I have 25% earth, 25% water, 25% fire, and 25% air. And that's the path to happiness. That's the path to harmony. That's the path to health. That's the path to wisdom. And that's the path to a higher level. It's compared in India with a cow. The cow has four legs. And if one leg of the cow is shorter, then the cow cannot stand properly. Like a table or like a bed. It needs to have four equal legs. And only when you have four equal legs, then the fifth element, the ether, from Vishuddha comes and sits on top of those. This is the symbolism in Indian mysticism. And therefore, it's, it's expected that, hey, the air element and Anahata Chakra is one of the foundations of the being. The truth is that nowadays, a lot of things happen from Anahata chakra and a lot of problems come from the lack of anahata chakra and um, even India which used to be a great example for anahata chakra not the only one don't think the Indians were the only ones I already gave the example of Russia and there are others um, even India is losing it to an alarming level like you know Men and women want to have children. But now if you are a little bit intelligent and well-educated in India, you don't want to have 15 children anymore because everybody knows that your country is on a ticking bomb of overpopulation. And there are already very severe problems due to simply too many people living in that space. So the people that have a university degree in India or something, they want to have one child. Maximum two. And of course, if you want to have a child and you have a bit of the primitive patriarchal instinct, you want that child to be a boy. So that he carries your name further to the next generation and whatever else. It's a primitive instinct. It's not fully logical. It's based on old rules from the old society. So what do the educated Indians do? And remember, we're talking about a hundred million people and more. 
every time when a woman gets pregnant, they make a ultrasound or other tests. And if it's a girl, they perform an abortion. And then they try the Russian roulette again. No? They try until they get a boy. It's like a jackpot machine, you know? It's a coin machine. Let's try until we get a boy. And if it's a girl, flush it down the toilet. Is there anahata in this? No mystic of India would have dared to do this. If you would have asked Ramakrishna or Ram Prasad to vouch for this, they would have committed public suicide, you know, rather than to vouch for such a thing. There is no, where is Anahata? When I was in India, I was reading the newspapers when men were getting bored of their wives so that they wouldn't pay divorce expenses. They wrapped them in cellophane, sprinkled them with gasoline and set them on fire. That's what you do with your wife when she's too much in India. It happened a lot, like the newspapers kept writing, again somebody put his wife in plastic and set her on fire. Where is the Anahata? You'd expect that a nation that has a great Anahata, it w- you would shudder at the mere thought of it. No, it's like, pff, this is like more than, accept- more than unacceptable. It's like, and still it happens. So it happens in many, many other nations that have had seeds of Anahata. The modern culture with all these mantras, like take care of yourself. Take care. Take care of yourself. But Jesus would never tell you, take care of yourself. If you'd meet with Jesus, he would say, take care of my brothers and sisters. What about me? I didn't eat. Yeah, it's okay. You can stay another six hours without eating. Just take care of everybody else. Ramakrishna had a rich sponsor and they gave him money to go on a pilgrimage. And Ramakrishna walked 30 kilometers towards a pilgrimage. Indians love pilgrimages. And then in an oasis, in a place of rest, they meet with other pilgrims coming from another part of India and going to some other part of India. They just cross paths. And all these people were hungry and poor. And then Ramakrishna tells to his attendant, who was having the money purse, buy food for all these people and feed them now. And the guy said, but sir... If we do this, then there is no more money for us to go on the pilgrimage. Ramakrishna says, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. These people are hungry. Somebody has to... They gave food to a hundred people, then Ramakrishna turned back home. He kind of forfeited his own pilgrimage, you know, because he had to give food to other people. This is, this, this spirit of anahata is very difficult in modern time because modern time, especially the capitalistic culture, says you have to take care of yourself. Take care of yourself is like look up your own belly button. Is develop your own Manipura. Because we know intuitively that people that have a good Manipura, they are strong and they can take good care of themselves. And if you have a child or a younger brother or sister who is Vadistanistic, Then you go like, oh my God, this child will never manage in the world. But if I'm telling my child, take care of yourself, the world is a jungle, then my child will have a good Manipura and they will somehow survive. What about their Anahata? Ah, Who needs Anahata? You know, like, forget about Anahata. You need Manipura in this world. This is the tragedy of it, that Anahata gets overlooked in this way, Because Manipura seems to be more important, 
It's actually not true. Look at the tragedy which is happening with people's immune systems. One of the biggest medical trends of modern times is that everybody has allergies. Allergies, 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 allergies. In Western Europe and North America, a child out of three or four is born allergic already. Allergies to what you wouldn't believe, from gluten to pollen, from this to nothing which existed a hundred years ago, it's there. All these allergies are related mostly with the decay of the immune system, which is coordinated by the thymus gland, which according to Ayurvedic medicine is the gland which coordinates the immune system and corresponds to Anahata Chakra. Even AIDS is a decline of the T-cells produced by the thymus gland. So even AIDS, which is the, uh, a paradigm of modern society, even AIDS is a decline of Anahata. That's why Indian gurus always say a yogi with a strong Anahata will never get sick with AIDS. You get sick with AIDS only when your anahata is fucked totally. Somebody with a strong anahata will have a strong thymus. The thymus gland shrivels when you are 10-12 years old and it becomes atrophied. And then in primitive countries, including in India, they found men and women who are 60 years old and they still have an active thymus their thymus doesn't die. While in Europe it dies at the age of 10 or 12. So anahata is really going down and that has consequences even on our health. Remember how many people in the old days did you hear that they died of tuberculosis? Tuberculosis. But of course if you have a woman and you put her in a corset, and she's tight in iron like this, and she has to be narrow in her shoulders, and she can breathe only clavicular, and the breasts go like this, because she's, of course she will make tuberculosis. If you have some poet living in a miserable room and with no food and this and that, of course they will make tuberculosis. Any tuberculosis, you see all these movies where people have tuberculosis. You can only dream if somebody put them on a helicopter and transformed them, transported them to the Shivananda Ashram or to Sri Yogendra in Bombay and they did six months of pranayama every day. Tuberculosis would be over if you did pranayama. It, all it took is pranayama. No? And you look at so many tragedies where people slowly died of tuberculosis because they killed their Anahata Chakra. They killed their heart chakra. That's why having problems with the heart chakra is a big problem also medically, physiologically, fundamentally, because I'm telling you again, the air element is one of the basic elements of the human physiology. It's one of the constitutive elements of the prakriti, of the body and nature, not to mention that this psychologically and emotionally deprives us of something very important. And that's why we look into this anahata, how necessary it is. And the first thing which I want to share with you is that generally we see in humanity that most of the spiritual teachers, they preached an evolution 
again, except the Zen Buddhists of Japan and a few others, they preached an evolution that moves towards Anahata. Many of my teachers told me, look around, which are the signs of times? When you look at spirituality in the last 2,000 years, where does it go? What does influence mostly the earth? Because we see a world teacher like Jesus, and all he preaches is that although obviously he knows about Sahasrara, nevertheless he preaches an existential mode on Anahata. Anahata is being preached, and just to make a long story short, because we started a bit late, just to make a long story short, most of the great metaphysicians of the 20th century, they claim that this hides a very peculiar truth. And that truth is that Anahata Chakra is like a landmark for the whole humanity in this cycle. As you know, or some of you know, and some of you will hear by watching other satsangs and other lectures about this, humanity, according to Indian and Tibetan gurus, is today in Kali Yuga, in the fourth quarter of a four-quarter cycle, towards the end of a cosmic cycle of about 26,000 years long, and we are close to the end. If close means 50 years or 20 years or 250 years, that's very little importance in the big picture. We are close to the end of a big cycle. This is called in language of yoga the end of Kali Yuga. So we are close to the end of Kali Yuga. And the end of Kali Yuga means like graduation day. It's like in Europe when it's the 15th of June and the kids finish the school year. And then there come the summer holidays. And next year, you are when you come back in September, school is starting and you are in the next grade. So... The end of Kali Yuga is when you move to the next grade. And when you move to the next grade, you need to have the grades which confirm that you can move to the next grade. According to most of the great metaphysics, uh, different other ascetics, it is perhaps best if I conclude this whole lecture on the value of Anahata. I hope I have convinced you. If you are going to have a spiritual life, put some Anahata into it. Spiritual life without anahata can make you grumpy, unhappy, unforgiving to yourself and too tough. If you want to have the joy and the agape and all those values, practice spirituality with a good amount of anahata chakra. And uh, speaking about the value of love, I will simply conclude and then stop this by just reading you the definition of love from Kahlil Gibran, a man with a great heart. Nobody can write this unless they feel it in their heart. And uh, it was not only Kahlil Gibran. I could read the whole night to you what Rumi says about love. Rumi had one of the most overwhelming heart chakras that I have seen in my life. You can see the poem of the heart of Omar Khayyam, of the famous Omar Khayyam, the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, a great Persian poet and astronomer. You can, so there is some Anahata Vishuddha there because of his passion for astronomy and for the heavens. You can read Hafiz and other poets, like just not to stay in the Christian world, 
but to go to the Sufi world. You can read the poems of love of Kabir and of other mystical poets of India, of Laleshwari and great mystics. Like everywhere where there was bhakti, everywhere where there was the path of the heart, there appeared so much richness about what comes from the heart. Kaklil Gibran is well known and almost all of you must have heard this at least once in your life. It's his definition of love and he is qualified. He knows what he's talking about. When love beckons to you, follow him, though his ways are hard and steep. The ways of love are hard and steep. Never forget this. Nobody says it's going to be easy. Like think about Jesus' life, which is a life of love. And read the life of Rumi and others and see, was it easy? No. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But it's going to be paradise. And when his wings enfold you, yield to him. Though the sword hidden among his pinions may wound you. There is a sword of love. There is blood. There is pain. And when he speaks to you, believe in him. Today, people don't even dare to believe. You know, somebody is telling you, I love you, and I don't know. Uh, no, like we hold back from love. We don't even believe in love. Though his voice may shatter your dreams as the north wind lays waste the garden. Because it's not from Zvadistana, it's from Anahata. Your dreams are coming from Zvadistana. But love will wake you up to the actual reality of love. For even as love crowns you, so shall he crucify you. It's a clear allusion to Jesus, who was crucified and had a crown on his head, a crown of thorns. So, love crowns you and crucifies you. But after the crucifixion, there comes eternal life, right? So, it's a good path. Even as he is for your growth, so is he for your pruning. Because all the things of the ego will have to be destroyed. Love is not tolerating those. Even as he ascends to your height and caresses your tenderest branches that quiver in the sun, like on a tree, so shall he descend to your roots and shake them in their clinging to the earth. Because love takes you to God, and then you cannot cling to the earth. Because the earth is your attachment to the physical body and to the physical life. And love will make you let go. You have to let go from this gross attachment. Like sheaves of corn he gathers you unto himself, he threshes you to make you naked, he sifts you to free you from your husks, he grinds you to whiteness, he kneads you until you are pliant, and then he assigns you to his sacred fire, that you may become sacred bread for God's sacred feast. All these things shall love do unto you, that you may know the secrets of your heart, and in that knowledge become a fragment of life's heart. Like he describes the process of producing flour and then bread, and it's tough from the standpoint of the grain of wheat. The grain of wheat gets crushed, grinded, kneaded, and everything, and it becomes bread. It becomes the bread which sits on the altar. It's the bread for God. So to, for you to become the bread of God, love has to beat you, like a schnitzel. No, love has a big hammer, and beats you like for schnitzel, because you are too tough, you are too resilient, you are not surrendering, you have to let go. 
But if in your fear, there's a beautiful paragraph, this one, because it shows the misunderstanding of love as some superficial form of joy. But if in your fear, you should seek only love's peace and love's pleasure, people think, oh, it's going to be peace and pleasure. Then it is better for you that you cover your nakedness and pass out of love's threshing floor into the seasonless world where you shall laugh, but not all your laughter, and weep, but not all of your tears. Like, when you don't accept the love with its pain, you just take half of love. You don't understand what all the love is. All the love is something which gives joy and tears. And then he says, you will laugh, but it will be only half of your laughter. You'll never go to the bottom of things. You will live superficially because you are afraid of the pain. You are afraid of the tears which come from there. Love gives not but itself and takes not but from itself. Love possesses not, nor would it be possessed. For love is sufficient unto love. When you love, you should not say, God is in my heart, but rather I am in the heart of God. And, this is a beautiful sentence also, think not you can direct the course of love. Like, I want to love this way, I don't want to love. You don't think you can direct the course of love. For love, if it finds you worthy, directs your course. Love is God. You don't control love. Love is like a river that carries your life. So, it's a blessing. That's why we... Don't shut the door in the face of love. When love comes, you have to be available and to say, yes, yes, God, yes. There is only yes to love, always. Love has no other desire but to fulfill itself. But if you love and must needs have desires, let these be your desires. To melt and be like a running brook that sings its melody to the night. To know the pain of too much tenderness to be wounded by your own understanding of love, and to bleed willingly and joyfully, to wake at dawn with a winged heart and give thanks for another day of loving, to rest at the noon hour and meditate love's ecstasy, to return home at eventide with gratitude, and then to sleep with a prayer for the beloved in your heart and the song of praise upon your lips. This is a wonderful mixture in which love in a human world is transfigured into a mystical path. This poem of Khalil Gibran is half written for mortals and half written for immortals. It's somewhere there on the limit where human beings cross from the little to the universal to the unconditional. Concluding, I'm simply, I hope I managed to make you understand that Anahata Chakra is a forgotten value. It's very declining in the modern world. Don't let yourself be influenced by that. Many people today, when they choose some religion, they choose Buddhism or something, precisely because it doesn't force them to love from the heart. It's emotionless in a certain way. We talk about compassion, but compassion is almost abstract. It's a sort of a general goodwill towards all the universe. But this experience of love is coming only through the heart. And I'm telling spirituality without the heart is not a full spirituality. 
and in the end of the day, it can make you enlightened, but in your daily life it will not make you joyful, loving and happy. I always recommend that although your path might not include anahata explicitly, you should have some anahata practice, and especially those of you who after a month, two months, three months, six months, ten months of yoga, you discover that your heart is not really so open as you thought it was, you should add a bit. It's like you put some spices in your food. Food without salt, without spices, is tasteless. In the moment when you spice it properly, it becomes delicious. The same is with life. Anahata is one of those spices which makes life worth living. And remember, you will not stay in samadhi all the time. When you will stay in samadhi all the time, you will leave your body. That will be the time when you leave your body and go. That will be your maha samadhi. So as long as you live in the body, cultivate a lot of heart, because heart will make this world bearable. It will make you love yourself, forgive yourself, and all the things which I have said here. Cultivate the virtues of love, humbleness, agape, and all the virtues which come from the heart, which I have mentioned. And try to read again and again these paragraphs about love to see, you know, how would a loving person react now? Life is always challenging us in a million ways. The question is, are we going to react from the heart or are we, are we going to react in another way? How would Jesus react to this and that? Of course, the example of Jesus is not always good because Jesus was a prophet and sometimes he got angry at people breaking the divine laws and so on. So Jesus showed multiple facets to the world. But that Anahata facet, that is the one that we are addressing here. And again, if Jesus is not good enough example for you, try to think how would Ramakrishna react? How would Yogananda react? How would Rumi react? Choose one of these great examples of the heart and try to do Samyama, try to identify, to see what is the way of living from the heart. With this, let us conclude for tonight. Sorry that I kept you late, but I wanted, we started late and I wanted to keep it in one single Satsang, I'll see you in our future meetings, questions and answers, and satsangs. With this, we have finished for tonight. Hey, uh, different other ascetics. It is perhaps best if I conclude this whole lecture on the value of Anahata. I hope I have convinced you. If you are going to have a spiritual life, put some Anahata into it. Spiritual life without anahata can make you grumpy, unhappy, unforgiving to yourself and too tough. If you want to have the joy and the agape and all those values, practice spirituality with a good amount of anahata chakra. And uh, speaking about the value of love, I will simply conclude and then stop this by just reading you the definition of love from Kahlil Gibran, a man with a great heart. Nobody can write this unless they feel it in their heart. And uh, 
It was not only Kahlil Gibran. I could read the whole night to you what Rumi says about love. Rumi had one of the most overwhelming heart chakras that I have seen in my life. You can see the poem of the heart of Omar Khayyam, of the famous Omar Khayyam, the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, a great Persian poet and astronomer. You can, so there is some Anahata Vishuddha there because of his passion for astronomy and for the heavens. You can read Hafiz and other poets, like just not to stay in the Christian world, but to go to the Sufi world. You can read the poems of love of Kabir and of other mystical poets of India, of Laleshwari and great mystics, like everywhere where there was bhakti, everywhere where there was the path of the heart, there appeared so much richness about what comes from the heart. Kaklil Gibran is well known, and almost all of you must have heard this at least once in your life. It's his definition of love, and he is qualified. He knows what he's talking about. When love beckons to you, follow him, though his ways are hard and steep. The ways of love are hard and steep. Never forget this. Nobody says it's going to be easy. Like, think about Jesus' life, which is a life of love, and read the life of Rumi and others and see, was it easy? No. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but it's going to be paradise. And when his wings enfold you, yield to him, though the sword hidden among his pinions may wound you. There is a sword of love. There is blood. There is pain. And when he speaks to you, believe in him. Today, people don't even dare to believe. You know, somebody is telling you, I love you, and I don't know. No, like we hold back from love. We don't even believe in love. Though his voice may shatter your dreams as the north wind lays waste the garden. Because it's not from Zvadistana, it's from Anahata. Your dreams are coming from Zvadistana. But love will wake you up to the actual reality of love. For even as love crowns you, so shall he crucify you. It's a clear allusion to Jesus who was crucified and had a crown on his head, a crown of thorns. So love crowns you and crucifies you. But after the crucifixion, there comes eternal life, right? So, it's a good path. Even as he is for your growth, so is he for your pruning. Because all the things of the ego will have to be destroyed. Love is not tolerating those. Even as he ascends to your height and caresses your tenderest branches that quiver in the sun, like on a tree, so shall he descend to your roots and shake them in their clinging to the earth. Because love takes you to God, and then you cannot cling to the earth. Because the earth is your attachment to the physical body and to the physical life. And love will make you let go. You have to let go from this gross attachment. Like sheaves of corn he gathers you unto himself, he threshes you to make you naked, he sifts you to free you from your husks, he grinds you to whiteness, he kneads you until you are pliant, and then he assigns you to his sacred fire, that you may become sacred bread for God's sacred feast. All these things shall love do unto you, that you may know the secrets of your heart, and in that knowledge become a fragment of life's heart. Like he describes the process of producing flour and then bread, and it's tough 
from the standpoint of the grain of wheat, the grain of wheat gets crushed, grinded, kneaded, and everything, and it becomes bread. It becomes the bread which sits on the altar. It's the bread for God. So to, for you to become the bread of God, love has to beat you, like a schnitzel. No, love has a big hammer and beats you like for schnitzel, because you are too tough, you are too resilient, you are not surrendering, you have to let go. But if in your fear, there's a beautiful paragraph, this one, because it shows the misunderstanding of love as some superficial form of joy. But if in your fear, you should seek only love's peace and love's pleasure, people think, oh, it's going to be peace and pleasure. Then it is better for you that you cover your nakedness and pass out of love's threshing floor into the seasonless world where you shall laugh, but not all your laughter, and weep, but not all of your tears. Like, when you don't accept the love with its pain, you just take half of love. You don't understand what all the love is. All the love is something which gives joy and tears. And then he says you will laugh, but it will be only half of your laughter. You'll never go to the bottom of things. You will live superficially because you are afraid of the pain. You are afraid of the tears which come from there. Love gives not but itself and takes not but from itself. Love possesses not, nor would it be possessed. For love is sufficient unto love. When you love, you should not say, God is in my heart, but rather I am in the heart of God. And, this is a beautiful sentence also, think not you can direct the course of love. Like, I want to love this way, I don't want to love. You don't think you can direct the course of love. For love, if it finds you worthy, directs your course. Love is God. You don't control love. Love is like a river that carries your life. So, it's a blessing. That's why we don't shut the door in the face of love. When love comes, you have to be available and to say, yes, Yes, God, yes. There is only yes to love, always. Love has no other desire but to fulfill itself. But if you love and must needs have desires, let these be your desires. To melt and be like a running brook that sings its melody to the night. To know the pain of too much tenderness. To be wounded by your own understanding of love. And to bleed willingly and joyfully. To wake at dawn with a winged heart and give thanks for another day of loving. To rest at the noon hour and meditate love's ecstasy. To return home at eventide with gratitude. And then to sleep with a prayer for the beloved in your heart and the song of praise upon your lips. This is a wonderful mixture in which love in a human world is transfigured into a mystical path. This poem of Khalil Gibran is half written for mortals and half written for immortals. It's somewhere there on the limit where human beings cross from the little to the universal to the unconditional. Concluding, I'm simply, I hope I managed to make you understand that Anahata Chakra is a forgotten value. It's very declining in the modern world. Don't let yourself be influenced by that. 
many people today, when they choose some religion, they choose Buddhism or something, precisely because it doesn't force them to love from the heart. It's emotionless in a certain way. We talk about compassion, but compassion is almost abstract. It's a sort of a general goodwill towards all the universe. But this experience of love is coming only through the heart. And I'm telling spirituality without the heart is not a full spirituality. And in the end of the day, it can make you enlightened, but in your daily life it will not make you joyful, loving and happy. I always recommend that although your path might not include Anahata explicitly, you should have some Anahata practice. And especially those of you who after a month, two months, three months, six months, ten months of yoga, you discover that your heart is not really so open as you thought it was, you should add a bit. It's like you put some spices in your food. Food without salt, without spices, is tasteless. In the moment when you spice it properly, it becomes delicious. The same is with life. Anahata is one of those spices which makes life worth living. And remember, you will not stay in samadhi all the time. When you will stay in samadhi all the time, you will leave your body. That will be the time when you leave your body and go. That will be your maha samadhi. So as long as you live in the body, cultivate a lot of heart, because heart will make this world bearable. It will make you love yourself, forgive yourself, and all the things which I have said here. Cultivate the virtues of love, humbleness, agape, and all the virtues which come from the heart, which I have mentioned. And try to read again and again these paragraphs about love to see, you know, how would a loving person react now? Life is always challenging us in a million ways. The question is, are we going to react from the heart or are we, are we going to react in another way? How would Jesus react to this and that? Of course, the example of Jesus is not always good because Jesus was a prophet and sometimes he got angry at people breaking the divine laws and so on. So Jesus showed multiple facets to the world. But that Anahata facet, that is the one that we are addressing here. And again, if Jesus is not good enough example for you, try to think how would Ramakrishna react? How would Yogananda react? How would Rumi react? Choose one of these great examples of the heart and try to do Samyama, try to identify, to see what is the way of living from the heart. With this, let us conclude for tonight. Sorry that I kept you late, but I wanted, we started late and I wanted to keep it in one single Satsang, I'll see you in our future meetings, questions and answers, and satsangs. With this, we have finished for tonight. Your mind, your own conscious and subconscious mind, is the one which is your judge and which frees you or keeps you in slavery. It's a value of the mind. I have a very beautiful example, which I plan to give later, but it fits here with a story from the fathers of the desert. 
there was a lazy monk, like the monks who lived in the fathers of the desert, in the monasteries, and so on. These are the early Christian monks from the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th century AD, and who lived in today's Israel, in today's Sinai Peninsula, and in today's Egypt. In those areas, there were isolated monks and mystics and nuns and so on, who lived in extraordinary uh, in extraordinary spiritual discipline. And one of these monks, he lived in a monastery, and he was considered the laziest monk in the monastery. Like, he didn't stand up for meditation, he didn't come and do his prayers, he, didn't, he was lazy. He was trying to sneak through life, like, in this way. And then he was about to die, and he was happy. He said, my death is coming, my freedom is coming, my... And the other said, are you kidding us? Like, did we miss something? Like, we know that you are one of us who never reached anything exceptional in your spiritual practice. Because, simply, let's say it straight, you are lazy. We were doing prayer, and you were stuffing your face, or sleeping, or something, you know? So it's like... And then they said, how comes that you are not afraid of death? Because in the whole monastery, you are supposed to be the one shitting your pants most. You know, because death is indeed coming, and you are totally unprepared for death. So, can you explain this, mister? Like, are you a total idiot? Or how come that you, you know? And this monk then, he told them the secret of a lifetime. He said, from the beginning of my practice, noticing that I don't have this kind of discipline and willpower that you guys have, then I decided on another discipline for me. And he said, I read carefully the words of Jesus. And Jesus said, judge not so that you will not be judged yourself. Because Jesus said, by the measure with which you measure to other people, by the same measure God will measure to you when you die. And that's your mind. If I have a critical mind and constantly, nah, nah, eh, 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 when I die, the same mind will look at me. And then I will look at me and I say, nah, 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 nah. Hell. That's the conclusion. Go to hell. That's what you deserve. No? So my mind is my judge. No? And this guy said, all my life in the last 30 years, I tried to practice this, that never I judged anybody. I never condemned in my mind anybody. I, it's very hard. If you'll try, you'll see. No, it's like I tried to stay in this state. And he said, because I succeeded, now I'm happy because now I'm going to God and God, according to his own promise, God will not judge me. They were amazed. This is Anahata Chakra. This is a form of Anahata Chakra. No? Like, spirituality is easy. You don't need to do 15 hours of meditation like Milarepa. It's just enough to not judge anybody. Ever. Which is, of course, as difficult as doing 15 hours of yoga every day. Only that the difficulty is somewhere else. Milarepa used his weapons, this anonymous old man, he used his skills, his talents. This is Anahata Chakra. So, to, co to conclude, because it's getting late, first of all is this, 
when you, 30 years from now, when you will be an advanced spiritual seeker or whatever you will be, do you want to be happy with yourself? Do you want to look in the mirror and laugh, smile, have joy? Then work on anahata. Because if you go on the path of zazen, you'll be like this. If you like the perspective of being like this, then go ahead. It's fine. It's a choice. It's a personal choice. But look at the results. Because every religion, every lineage, generates people of a certain kind. And try to find out what kind you want to be, and don't try to ride on two horses at the same time. Choose your future. Your, your practice determines your future and who you are going to be. The aspiration of Anahata Chakra, that's another virtue why I recommend Anahata in yoga a lot, is that Anahata gives a special kind of aspiration. Jesus has defined the three types. He said there are people who do the will of... What's the will of God? The will of God is that you evolve. You have been created so that you become conscious, that you wake up. All these animalistic lives and animalistic lives, they have to end into nirvana sooner or later. So therefore, what God wants, the will of God, is for you to wake up. The divine consciousness is waiting patiently for thousands of lifetimes where you run in circles, confused, until one day you become like Buddha. You say, now I stop running in circles, now it's time to wake up. My time has come. So, the, Jesus says, there are people who do the will of God. Like God said, thou shall not kill. Yeah, why not? Sometimes you really feel like you want to kill some bastards and so on. You're like, why? If you don't kill, then you do the will of God. And Jesus says, some people do the will of God because they are afraid of God. Karma or whatever. And then this says, Jesus, these are like slaves to God. God is ruling them with a whip. Out of fear, they don't dare to go astray. Then he says, they are the second category. That do the will of God, because they started understanding the system, and they know that if you behave harmonious within some, within some limits, then you gain a lot because you don't die because of karma, you don't get a cancer, you don't get this, you don't get... Like, for example, if you eat too much meat, you kill too many animals. And from all those animals that you have killed to eat, even if you don't eat, kill them with your own hand, but you paid for them to be killed, so they are on your account, for all the animals which you kill to eat, you are going to get a cancer in your intestines. The blood of those animals is screaming for revenge. They killed me, they killed me, they killed me, the bastards killed me to eat me. And too many animals, if, if an animal is not important, then 10,000 animals will be important enough to get you a cancer. And therefore, some people understand this and they say, wait a second, then I get vegetarian. If I get vegetarian, I'll never have a cancer. But that's not because they are compassionate or something. It's because they are smart. They understood how to play with these rules. And Jesus says those are the merchants of God. Those are tradesmen. Those are people who simply learned 
how to manipulate the system, and they get the good things out of it. And then he says, there are also the third category of people who do the will of God out of love. Like I've got nothing to get, no benefit to get, I've got no fear of God, and still I'm doing the right thing, because it's like karma yoga. I don't expect anything in exchange, but I do the right thing. And Jesus says, those are the sons of God. Like the son does the will of a father out of love, not because the father is a master of slaves, nor because the father is paying him to do it, giving him benefits. It's simply an act of love. Out of love, I do. I, I feel that that's what I have to do. That's why the aspiration of Anahata is of this kind. The aspiration from Manipura is like you are making benefits. You are a businessman bargaining with God. The aspiration from the low chakras is an animalistic aspiration where you are afraid. You are afraid of death. You are afraid of pain. You are afraid of loneliness. And then you try to reach God out of fear, which is good in the first stages. But ultimately, when it gets here, then it simply becomes an act of love. What do you expect to get for all these things? Nothing. Nothing. There is a scene with one of the great Christian saints where the devil appears to him in a vision or in whichever way. And he says, why do you keep praying there to God? You are going to get nothing in the end. And the saint retorted to him. And he said, whatever I'm going to get or not get, you are below me on the rung of evolution. So just fucking go to hell back where you come from. No, like it doesn't, you don't try, he was trying to discourage him. Why do you keep praying 12 hours per day? You'll get nothing from praying 12 hours per day. But that was a test for him to see if he really did it without any motivation. I don't pray 12 hours per day because I want to get something. I pray 12 hours per day because I cannot not to pray 12 hours per day. I pray 12 hours per day simply because I want to be in the presence of God. And whenever I say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, I'm in the presence of Jesus. And that's all I want. I don't know, I'm not expecting anything from it. It's just like a drug, like a sweet drug for my heart, and that's all I need. I, I'm not expecting any reward from it. Therefore, the aspiration of Anahata is particular, and the last thing which I want to emphasize, there are actually three sentences after that which I want to comment for you. The most important thing is the important value of humbleness. I'm saying this specially because this is not understood very well in the West. Because in the Western cultures, especially the Germanic, Scandinavic, Anglo-Saxon, even France to a large extent, most of these cultures, Spanish to a large extent, there is very little Anahata. And because of this, people are actually not cultivating humbleness. In all the environments where there is a strong anahata, there is a lot of humbleness, and the humbleness comes first. Mahatma Gandhi, who had a lot of anahata, stirring up the Indian spirit and at the same time being a Libra astrologically, an air sign, and who developed a lot of anahata because the people of India said, yes, this man is the only real man among all this bunch of politicians. And that's why the peasants of India 
they called Gandhi Mahatma, great soul. Nehru and although they were not great soul, they were politicians, egoistic people. But Gandhi was Mahatma. No? And Mahatma Gandhi, who was, you know what the Romans say, Vox Populi, Vox Dei, the voice of people is the voice of God. When a whole nation like India takes a man and says, this is Mahatma, even the yogis of India have acknowledged him. Shivananda, Aurobindo, they have said, this is the voice of the gods. This man emerged from politics and he was just a lawyer trying to make a case, but look what a heart he has. So Mahatma Gandhi, who is a model for the modern heart, he said humility is the solid foundation of all the other virtues. Like if you are non-violent and you are proud that you are non-violent, you fucked up really bad. If you are truthful and you tell the truth, and if you are proud that you speak the truth, I'm always speaking the truth, you are on the side of the devil. You've missed the value of your truthfulness because you boast about it and you are proud about it. In Christianity, those of you who have seen Hollywood movies, you've seen that there are seven capital sins, such as murder and the others, avarice and so on. The capital sins are supposed to be really bad. But you know that there are sins which are worse than that? That's not the highest level of sins. There are the ultimate sins which are called the sins against the Holy Spirit. And the worst of all of them is pride. In, Christ, in Jewish, Christian and Islamic mysticism, the devil, Satan, is a fallen angel that has fallen because of pride. The cause of fall of the devil is the pride, not the murder. Not the gluttony, not the lust. All these are kindergarten. Pride is the top. Pride can bring you in the camp of the devil. And people are, I'm very proud of this. I'm very proud. You should hit yourself over the mouth when you say such a stupid thing. Don't be proud. Proud? Why should you be proud? Pride is a demonic thing. The actual value is humbleness. You should be humble, which is the opposite of pride. That's why the, the pride is the foundation of all the other virtues. Whatever. I'm a brahmachari. <laughs> you don't know how well I control my sexual energy. You are a demon. You are just a sexy demon. You are a gigolo. You are a prostitute. You are something, you know. You control your sexual energy, but you are proud. You should control your sexual energy and be humble about it. That's the real greatness. That's the real spirituality. Not with pride. Pride doesn't belong in spirituality, and especially in the spirituality of Anahata Chakra. And thus... I was saying that analyzing how much love is there in us, let's just see love according to the great experts. You know, for sure, this one which I'm going to read to you because it's a great classic, but listening to the description of love according to Paul, who was a killer of men and a persecutor of men, and then he entered the state of Samadhi through grace from Jesus. And then he became 
an Anahata saint. Of course, he must have had great predispositions when, Jews, when Jesus chose him for this mission, but so he did. And then he wrote, among others, about love. Try to listen to this half of a page of Paul about love and try to ask yourselves how many of these things did you feel in your life? How many of these virtues did you experience? To which extent can you identify with love? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, I give to the poor, that's not from the heart. I renounce everything. The Buddhists do that as well. I'm not saying that they don't have a heart. It doesn't come as an act from the heart necessarily. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I am nothing. That's one of the great spiritual authorities of the world has to say. And now he comes and he describes it. He says, love is patient. Like, are you patient? If you are not patient, it's a big question mark. Why aren't you patient? Because love is patient. Love is patient. Love is kind. Are you kind? It does not envy. Do you envy? Who did you envy last time? Where was your envy? What do you envy? It does not envy. It does not boast. When did you boast last time? Forgetting to be humble. It is not proud, because it's full of humbleness, of course. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Like, do you keep record of wrongs? Do you have some people who say, this person in the last 10 years has really, really upset me? That's not love. Love doesn't do that. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And finally, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, and a child means spiritually a child, like not mature spiritually, without love. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then, like when you reach spiritual maturity, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three 
remain faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is what a person who lived a life of love has to say about love. And thus, there are so many innumerable stories about this I was telling you about the fathers of the desert. Here is one more. The fathers of the desert, they were living this extreme heart where they don't want to, they didn't want to even judge. Like in the moment when you judge somebody and you say, oh, did you hear about, uh, uh, whom to say, Popeye the sailor or something, a name which is not here. Is there any Oscar in here, in the hall? Did you hear about Oscar, that Oscar is a sinner and Oscar is a liar and Oscar, you know, like, how do you know? Who are you to judge Oscar that Oscar is more miserable than me and you because somebody caught him lying? Like, do you know the whole story? Do you know what was it like? Who gives you the right to place yourself above somebody else to just say, oh, but, uh, you know, I'm superior in this way? No? And even if you are superior on Anahata, but you are not practicing this. So this old man was a great saint and he was having uh, great some cities and great grace upon him and then he goes to a meeting and he meets with other monks and he says what about this what about that and then he says what about that fellow you know how is he and the guys tell him oh that fellow is living in sin he is badly fallen he is like in a pathetic condition and this old man goes like oh like you know like he is approving of it. And he felt in that moment that all the grace which he acquired in 20 years of prayer, it instantly stopped. Like he felt butt naked. Because he dared to just do like this. <sighs> you know, like, no, poor guy. No, he was condescending to that guy. And the history says, then he went into the desert again and he prayed for 10 years before the grace came back to him. Just because he became arrogant, like, ah, yeah, that guy is a fallen guy. This is the path of the heart when taken to extreme levels. When, ah, when you use Manipura, when you use Ajna, when there can be multiple things. In yoga, we don't practice only the heart. But these people were practicing 99% heart, 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 heart. And for them, this was very, very relevant. Fasting and eating out of love. There is a quote from St. Peter of Damascus, which I truly wanted to bring to you, but I gave the book to the people who did the Bhakti retreat. And there, there is, it says, there are people who are fasting. And they are fast. The right motivation is that they fast because they want other people to eat the food which they would have eaten. People say, I'm fasting to clean my digestive system. That's an egoistic way of fasting. But there are people who say, I fast because there are children who die of hunger on the planet Earth. And what I don't eat maybe goes to some hungry people somewhere. That's a way of fasting. It's another way of fasting. Even fasting and eating can be done out of love, with love, with humbleness. In the prayer of the heart, the famous prayer of the heart, it's a formula which constantly induces the idea of asking for help, 
but proclaiming yourself first as a sinner, in the first stage of the prayer, at least. And it says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you don't say a sinner, then you are arrogant, because you think you are better than that. It is written by the Jewish mystics and that the angels in heaven are singing praise to God. The mystics have been in high state where they heard the choirs of angels praising God. And one of the songs which is classical in Judaism and is taken in Christianity as well from the Jewish mystics is this song in which uh, approximately I... I translate it in English. I've never seen it in English, but it, it says like something like this. It, say, it says, Holy God, Holy Deathless One, have mercy on us. No, Holy God, Holy Strong One, Holy Deathless One, have mercy on us. And the same mystics, they said, the difference between the angels and the demons is that the demons don't say the last sentence. The demons are getting goosebumps in front of God, and they envy him how strong and shining he is. And they say, Holy God, Holy Strong One, Holy Deathless One. And their mind says, may we be like you, you know? Like we envy you, we want to, you know? The humble person says, have mercy on us. This position where you place yourself in modesty, in humbleness, this is the, play, the, the prayer of the heart and the path of the heart. And I have known so innumerable stories of humbleness because I come from an environment where Anahata was being practiced and I remember just one to give you as an example. There was a story in a monastery, a monastery somewhere in Moldavia, and in this monastery, there were like 100 monks. And uh, when it came to the Easter, the Easter has something which happened yesterday or something, which means the starting of the Lent. Yesterday or the day before yesterday, there started 49 days where people don't eat animal products. They go vegan, 100%. That's called the Lent. And it just started two days ago, and it ends in the day of the Easter. On the Easter day... It ends. On Easter, you can eat eggs and whatever, lamb and whatever. Easter is not a vegan day, but until Easter, till midnight of the day before, the Saturday before Easter, it's Lent right now. So some people have gone in Christian countries totally vegan for, for as a discipline, as a form of purification and discipline. In this monastery, they started the first week by doing black fasting like taking only water. They didn't eat anything for seven days. Every year when it was February like this, they started this Lent with seven days of full-on fasting, imitating Jesus who fasted for 40 days. So they did the Lent. And the whole monastery, it was difficult, you know, seven days of fast is, a, is an effort. Is a, you know, they did it. And then they stopped, always, after the first week. And there was one monk in the monastery who always continued. And he actually did 40 days full. Every year he did 40 days of fast, of not eating anything. Of it. 
in this Christian tradition that I'm talking to you about, to make sure that you are not doing things proudly and arrogant, like, ha ha, look at me, I can fast for 40 days. Then it just enhances your ego. It's a way of boasting. It's a way of bragging. So to preserve your humbleness, everything is done like in the samurai world, with the blessing of your abbot. Like the, the abbot of the monastery has to give you a blessing. Say, sir, I would like to fast 40 days this year. Do you allow me? Bless me to fast 40 days. And the abbot says, no, 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 no. You are bragging. Your ego is talking now. You want to show off. Just get and eat with everybody else. Stop pretending that you are, no? So just to keep your humbleness. This monk was fasting 40 days. And he did it without the blessing from the abbot. Like the other said, why is he, does he think he's smarter than us? Does he think he's more spiritual than us? And the abbot says, it's his will, you know, it's like, but did you give him blessing? The abbot said, no, he's just doing it. Did, did you advise him? Yeah, I told him, brother, please don't go there. You know? But he simply says, no, I feel like doing this for Jesus and so on. So this man was like the arrogant, demonized monk of the monastery. And one day, the abbot passed away. And the last confession which he did was this. this. This monk always had had blessing. But in secret from him. Like they made a deal with the abbot that he should appear to the rest of the monastery as a renegade and as a selfish person. And secretly, the abbot was giving him the blessing. Like, okay, you can do 40 days. He didn't do it without blessing. But if he would have done it with blessing, everybody in the monastery would have said how strong this guy is. And they would have envied him. It would have boosted his ego. And then he was so careful about protecting his humbleness and modesty that he was playing a, a lying game with the abbot in which both of them agreed to lie and to make him look guilty and bad just so that he can stay humble. Because then the other monk said, yeah, you are fasting, but you are fasting without a blessing from the abbot, so you are actually shit, you know. You are actually... Everybody threw tomatoes at him, and he was, and he was doing it with blessing. Never. Only when the abbot died, the abbot confessed, you should know that this guy had my blessing all during his life. This is how humble people live. They protect their humbleness to a level which is inconceivable. No? Because for them, the humbleness is the most important thing. No? And they are very careful about this. And humbleness precedes glory, as a great proverb says. Remember that even Jesus, before he became who he became, he was humbled. That's also some people on Manipura in the Jewish environment, they couldn't understand how a person, like if you stand tall, everybody can see that you are a great spiritual authority. But Jesus was a hippie. They beat him, they spit on, they spat on him, they crucified him, he didn't do anything, he stayed like a lamp. And now you are coming and telling me that he has become God? Like that's too much. What kind of God is twisting things in this way? No. This is the statement that humbleness precedes glory. Like first, you have to be humble 
and then glory is given. Glory is a title which comes to those that are truly humble. Like you can bet that Buddha was humble. You can bet that Krishna and many others, they had a natural humbleness. This is coming from the heart. Other values, just to conclude, other values which, uh, I'm sorry I keep you a bit later today, but I want to keep this subject in one. Another thing which creates, because I said Anahata creates a typology. Another thing is Agape. Agape is a rare word. It means that among people, as there is love to God and aspiration, there is a horizontal love which unites all people. That love in the Greek culture, it was called Agape. And Agape means the brotherly love that when people meet, they rejoice, they love, they party, they are together with each other. When you live in Manipura like some Zen master in a forest, there is no agape. Christians, the Christian saints and all these people in the heart, the Sufis, Rumi, take others, I'm not only talking about the Christians, or Ramakrishna, they were constantly in agape. Agape means like a party, but not a wild party. It's a party from Anahata. It's a party where there is hug and love and compassion and joy of Anahata type. Anahata chakra gives you true friendship. For me, friendship has always been very important in spirituality. When I was five years old or something, my father told me a story with the hope of generating this thing in me as educational, he told me a story which stayed with me for the rest of my life. There's a story of two people in Greece, in ancient Greece, and one of them is condemned to death for a fault which he did. The ruler of the city says, you die. And then this man prays to the king of the city, and he says, look, I have a family in another city. They won't even know that I'm dead. My affairs are not in order. Give me a month and I go home, I put all my affairs, I leave my wife and children in a good condition and I come back to... The king says, are you crazy? You want me to just let you go for one month hoping you'll come to be killed? Like Nobody would do that. So the king says, I won't let you go unless somebody stands in for you. And if you don't come, I will kill that person instead of you. So this man had a friend. And his friend went to prison and said, sure, I'll stand in for him. In the one month past, this guy appears in the last moment. It's a dramatic end because this other guy is almost getting killed. And then this guy appears running and saying, stop, stop, don't kill him. I'm back, you know, and so on. And he says there was contrary winds. He had to sail through the Greek islands. And he said there were bad weather and so on. I barely made it, but don't kill him. And then the king stopped the execution and you said, such a friendship cannot die. I cannot let this man die because I have not seen such friendship anywhere in the world. And he even said, please, you too, could you have me as your friend? Would you like to add me as your friend? I would like to be friend with people like you. This is the value of friendship. Even Jesus, when he's asked to define love, Jesus says, what? he doesn't define the love between a man and a woman. Because that is confusing, because it contains a lot of Svadhisthana emotional things. So Jesus, when he describes love, he describes it like the love between friends. And he says, what love is there greater 
than when a man puts his life for his brothers and gives it willingly. This is what love is greatest for Jesus. That's why this thing like the three musketeers or whatever, all for one and all one for all, this is the true friendship which comes from the heart. When you have a friend for whom you would go to prison or die, that's friendship. That's why for me, it's very seldom that I dare to use the name friend. Everybody says, my friend, my friend. I have a friend on Facebook. You don't even know them and you call them friends. You wouldn't give them the keys to your car. You wouldn't give them your bank account or your PIN number to your credit card. You wouldn't give them access to have sex to your wife or girlfriend. And you call them friends. In my humble opinion, those are not friends. Those are just acquaintances. They are people that you know and with whom you may have a close relationship. A friend is love. is pure love. And my dear friends, in case you didn't have a friend in your life, I advise you, get quickly one. See if you are capable of friendship. Because it may be that if you don't have friends, first of all, it's you who don't give. You are the ones who don't start the problem. Then you complain, nobody is friends with me. Do you have friends? Was there a person in your life for whom you felt I can die right now? That's where friendship and love really goes. And I was blessed with friendship because of, probably because of this story. I always seeked for friendship. I always values, valued loyal friendship in my life. And I had friends for whom I felt this thing. Many people tell me, I'm practicing this Agama Yoga and I love it and all this spirituality is crazy and I want more of it. And when I go back to Germany or to London or wherever I go, I feel so alone. All my friends from the old days, they are smoking, they are drinking, they are taking drugs, they are eating meat, they are not interested. And I feel after three months, I crack. I can't take it anymore because it means I live alone in my room and I look at the walls and I howl like a wolf. And I cannot, I, I need to socialize. And when I socialize, I socialize with people that don't support my spiritual efforts. And then I start falling. And then I don't practice yoga anymore. And I don't do this. I have never experienced this because when I was young and started practicing spirituality, I had a true friend. And we did yoga together and I have never felt what it means to be alone in spirituality. I have never been alone because I always had a friend. And with this friend, I talked everything. I shared everything. I experienced everything. I, we shared money and tantric sex and everything. Everything. Completely. Completely. And this has meant so much for me. When I look back, I see that part of the fact that I traveled well through yoga was this. That's why I'm telling you, if you don't have a friend who is at this level, try to meditate. Why not? What is the problem? Why not? Are you not capable of such a friendship? Are you not ready to give 110%? Is your ego too big?
Are you hypnotized by the sentence, take care of yourself? Because when you have a friend, you don't take care of yourself. You take care of your friend, always, first. The other is more important than you. So, true friendship is a value of... And there is some friendship in Manipura, like the Three Musketeers of Alexander Dumas. is not a story on Anahata. That is a loyalty story of soldiers. It's a soldierly friendship, like a samurai friendship from Manipura. And that also can go there. But in Anahata, this friendship has the aspect of love. And I could tell you so many things about bhajans, kirtans, positions of the 20th century that is illustrated by the consciousness of Anahata Chakra. They say that that's why Jesus, who, was, who claimed he was God, set this standard. Like friends, humanity, children, you have to reach at least the heart chakra. It's exactly like when you do your third grade and you have to learn the tables of multiplication. If by the end of the third grade you don't know that 5 times 7 is 35, then you have to do the third grade once more. The teacher will not pass you. You will not promote to the fourth grade because you have to have learned the tables of multiplication. And therefore, it's exactly like this. If you reach Anahata, you move to the next level, whatever the next level is. If you don't reach Anahata, you are going to do this cosmic cycle once more. You simply repeat until you graduate. Anahata Chakra is graduation, is the final sash exam in the end of this cosmic cycle. And therefore, gurus attach a lot of importance to Anahata Chakra because they read the signs which come from the great seers and gurus and they simply say that this is important for this cycle of evolution. People say, what if I reach Ajna Chakra? What if I reach Sahasrara? Good for you. Congratulations. You've gone above your grade. It's exactly like a whiz kid that learns the table of multiplication in the kindergarten, and when he is in the third grade, he can do algebra and he can do analysis. Yeah, there are a few of those kids, and they are geniuses. You know? So some people can be ahead of the flock, but for most people, there is a standard level. That standard level, most of my teachers agreed, most of the teachers that I met in my life agreed with this, and it is my feeling today as well, that Anahata Chakra represents simply a standard. It's the red line. And in the end of this cosmic cycle, you're going to find out if you are above the red line or below the red line. Promoted or not yet promoted. It's not a tragedy if you have to repeat a cycle, but it's, it's a sort of a carrot. It's a sort of a standard that you put in front of you and you say, I need to do this in the Next 50 years, I need to do this. This is one of my goals. Because the universe sets this goal for me. So, of course, this shows intuitively a lot in humanity. It shows in the signs of evolution. When I'm talking about evolution and when we do the metaphysical workshop here in Agama, I quote the different signs of evolution. And there I quote, 
Ludwig van Beethoven. Ludwig van Beethoven says, for me, there is just one sign of evolved. Like somebody here says, I am an evolved human being. Evolved means far from the baboons, far from the gorillas, you know, because if you are not evolved, it means you freshly come out of a gorilla. But if you are evolved, it means it's long, long time ago that you have been a gorilla, and you are closer to the devas and to the angels. You are closer to the under end of the scale. Ludwig van Beethoven says, any one of you claims that you are evolved, he says, for me, humble Ludwig van Beethoven, for me there is just one sign of evolution. And he says, that's goodness. 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 Ludwig van Beethoven says, you, you are evolved if I see that you are really, really, really a good person. If you are not good, you are a chimpanzee. That's, that's how Beethoven evaluated people. Beethoven is not my guru and not your guru. He's just a man who composed beautiful, beautiful music coming from a beautiful, beautiful heart, coming from a beautiful, beautiful soul. But it's interesting to see what a musician of a certain refinement felt like a standard for it. So evolution automatically, as a, we see it in the collective subconscious mind, that people equate evolution with a good heart, with a great heart. Because this goodness is something which comes from the heart. The gift of the Holy Spirit, as listed in the Bible. I was looking at this earlier, no? announced by Paul in one of his famous letters. No? And I don't know if I find them. But he says somewhere in the, his letter to the Galatians, but he says, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. And he says, I warn you against this. Those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit, so evolution, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So, again, we see that generally humanity on various meridians, when it refers to what comes from the human evolution, it refers to a lot of values, out of which many of them are related to Anahata Chakra. In India, a fundamental tantric text like Kularnava Tantra describes the characteristics of the real disciple. Who is a real disciple and who is a real guru, who is a real teacher. And among the characteristics of the real disciple, they mention aspiration, the Ishvara Pranidhana, which comes from the heart, the longing for the absolute, the longing for the truth for the oneness. They mention faith and devotion, being helpful to all people, being grateful, thoughtful, being indifferent to praise, but open to criticism from others, 
like Jesus, who said, don't see the straw in the eye of other people, rather see the beam in your own eye. Yeah? So, a, a different attitude rather than saying you, you, you. Who is guilty for the fact that you cannot have a proper relationship? My mother, because she didn't love me enough. My father, because he spanked me. My uncle, because he sexually abused me. The answer in old Christianity is always here. Mea culpa. The fact that I'm fucked up, it's mea culpa. It's nobody's fault. It's always my fault. That's why you can, the today's social system always wants to point fingers. You are guilty, he is guilty, everybody is guilty, the world is guilty. That's a way of running from your own heart. When you are in Anahata Chakra, the fault is always here. You may have straws in your eyes, but the beam in my eye is huge compared to the straw in your eyes. So why should I start talking about your problems when my problems are huge? Then it's mea culpa. It's always. That's what Gurdjieff said, although he was not teaching according to Anahata, he still was going according to spiritual principles. And Gurdjieff said, the inferior man is the man of tea culpa, and the superior man is the man of mea culpa. But to have mea culpa, you need to be humble. And humbleness is one of the crucial virtues of Anahata Chakra, which today is not cultivated at all. People are afraid of humbleness. People run from humbleness like from the devil. But the funny thing is that the devil is exactly the opposite of humbleness. So people run in the wrong direction. Humbleness is desirable, not the opposite, not pride. So, indifferent to praise, say Kula Navatantra, but opposite, open to criticism from others, speaking moderately and with a smile that is good and true. All these are showing a certain kind of the model which is given in Kularnavatantra is how did the old gurus love to see their disciples? Faithful, devoted, with a true and beautiful smile, helpful to all, open to criticism from the others, and all the rest which I said here. So, definitely in some spiritual lineages, we have this culture of the heart, which unfortunately today, it gets lost. It gets lost. I come from a country where traditionally there was quite a bit of Anahata Chakra. The culture from where I come 400 years ago was very, very much on Anahata Chakra. Today, when you go in the same culture, very elderly people, they still live in their heart culture. And the rest, it's capitalism, competition, take care of yourself, and all these kinds of things, in which like Anahata Chakra is like, it's not practical, it's not competitive enough. But remember, you are going to see, as I'm going through this with you, that actually this is a trap, because you seem that you win by being more competitive, and especially going to Manipura, and then you lose everything. Then you lose your soul. That's what Jesus was telling to his disciples. What use is there to a man if he wins, if he conquers half of the world, if in the process he loses his soul? 
then you are like the Roman emperors. Half of the world is in the fist of your hand, and you've got no soul, and you live in hell. People like Nero and Caligula and this kind of people, they may have had power, but they lived in hell. They were tormented souls. Their life shows an agony without end. Because it's not enough to be competitive and to win, 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 win. You always have to win. Actually, the humble person learns how to lose. In the Tibetan yoga, there are precepts for disciples. And there, are, there is a one chapter, which is the ten signs of a superior man. What the Tibetan lamas and gurus, what did they think that they are the ten signs of a superior man? And one of them is to accept defeat for oneself and to let other people win is a sign of a superior man. No? Like you are competing for money, business, a sexual partner and other things. And usually people would walk over dead bodies for these things. And the Tibetan lamas say, if you are truly superior, then you stand one step back and you say, why should we fight for it? You win. It's okay. You win. And what about you? I will die in peace. I, God will give me something. The universe will provide. I'm totally confident in this universe. I'm not struggling. I'm not pushing forward like this. That's, of course, very contrary to the way in which people do business, for example. Because in business, you have to blow your trumpet constantly. Me, 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 look at me, and so on. It's like, no, that's also not a spiritual thing in this way. So, I want to make you understand this, because you are going to say, what's the importance of this ultimately? The importance of this is that Anahata creates a certain typology of spiritual practitioner and a certain typology of life. That means, try to compare in your mind an enlightened being from Japan, I don't know, Dogen or some of these great masters, no? and Francis of Assisi or whoever life you know, you know, Peter and Paul or any, any of the great Christian mystics who are famous for their heart. Because you have to understand one little thing. People, spiritual practitioners, are not constantly in samadhi. Many of you have spiritual dreams, and I admire you for your spiritual dreams and for your aspiration. And those spiritual dreams sometimes are unrealistic, because they are a little bit like a... Walt Disney movie. No, you live in a sort of a fantasy. And many people think, I'm going to be like Buddha, I'm going to be like Shankaracharya, I'm going to be like Abhinavagupta, and I'm going to do yoga, and I'm going to rise my Kundalini, and it's going to hit my Sahasrara, and I will have, after a few years, my first state of Samadhi, and then after a few days or weeks, I'm going to have my second state of Samadhi, and then I'm going to make my states of Samadhi almost daily, and daily, and more, and longer, and my goal is to be in Samadhi all the time. That doesn't happen. I just want to give you a cold shower. That's not the way it goes. 
If you stay in Nirvikalpa Samadhi more than 28 days, you leave your body. Ramakrishna almost died in Samadhi because he stayed on and off for six months in Samadhi. Because the life on earth is not meant that you sit cross-legged with your eyes rolled up and you sit in Samadhi. Then you just become a sort of a useless citizen of the earth. You are breathing our air and not giving anything in exchange. No? Then why don't you just go? If you have gone in Nirvana, then okay, stop your heart and just go. It's more honest. It's more like you don't want to be here, obviously. Because all day long you're just sitting like this and you're gone. So be gone. It's fine. Be gone in Nirvana and that's it. Many yogis and many mystics did that as well. But Buddha, when he reached Nirvana, you obviously you realize that Buddha didn't reach Nirvana only under the Bodhi tree. Because Buddha was meditating practically every day. He lived on the face of the earth for another 40 years and he did meditation with his disciples. He taught them meditation. He taught them the Vipassana. He taught them a lot of other things. And he taught them self-discipline. And he created the first Buddhist monasteries. The Sangha. The Buddhist community. So Buddha obviously was still into the spiritual practice. After he reached Nirvana. So you reach. And you come out of it. And you reach. And you come out of it. Ramakrishna was upset. If he spent too much time in Samadhi. Because he says what uses Samadhi to me now. Except of the fact that I'm enjoying myself enormously. Every time when I go in Samadhi, it's like there's eternal happiness. I'm in bliss. What do you get from this? You just look at me enough. If I would be sitting here in Samadhi for one hour, you'd say, interesting man, I've never seen anything like this. It's really weird. This Swami. And, but after one hour, you'll start scratching your noses and saying, what now? Will he actually say a word or something? Or will he just keep looking like a smiling puppet? And we assume that he is in some great ecstasy inside his head or inside his crown chakra. No, like, what's the use for me? If Swamiji is not teaching me Padahastasana and Pranayama and how to do Brahmacharya, then he is useless if he is just sitting there and smiling for himself. We expect more for some. So, you actually, you want me outside of Samadhi. Inside Samadhi, I'm just like a painting on a wall. You can take a photo of me in Samadhi and put it on the wall. But that's what, how much use you get from that. And Ramakrishna noticed it. And Ramakrishna said, when I'm in Samadhi, I cannot talk to you. I cannot explain to you about the divine nature. I cannot give you enthusiasm. I cannot sing bhajans and kirtans with you. And I cannot inflame your hearts. I'm sitting there like a smiling log. And, you know, I, some people say maybe he's just hysterical. Maybe it's a form of catalepsia or some brain condition or this, you no. Know? It's not even clear what that person is doing, you know, in being there. That's why, of course, the great masters and this, they said, yeah, you go, but then you come. And you go again, and then you come. And you go again, and then you come. So part of your life is in meditation. And part of your life is in the world. When you come in the world, 
exception made of some very, 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 very great examples, a la Jesus, you are not in Samadhi when you are eating breakfast. Yes, it is assumed that Ramakrishna and Jesus and the likes of them, they were in Samadhi even when they were eating breakfast. Those are extremely rare cases, even in the world of yoga. People like Swami Shivananda and Paramahamsa Yogananda and the likes of them, they were one hour in Samadhi, 23 hours doing Karma Yoga. One hour in Samadhi, 23 hours doing Karma Yoga. So the problem is when you, in those 23 hours, what is your dominant chakra? Because you are not in Sahasrara anymore. You are not in Ajna. You go up, up, and you have what is called today in modern psychology, it's called the peak experience. Samadhi is a peak experience. So you have a peak experience, which may look odd to the people around you. And then when you come back, you come back. And when you come back, Kundalini is going down again. Where does it go down? That is exactly what I'm trying to tell you. Positions of the 20th century that is illustrated by the consciousness of Anahata Chakra. They say that that's why Jesus, who, was, who claimed he was God, set this standard. Like friends, humanity, children, you have to reach at least the heart chakra. It's exactly like when you do your third grade and you have to learn the tables of multiplication. If by the end of the third grade, you don't know that 5 times 7 is 35, then you have to do the third grade once more. The teacher will not pass you. You will not promote to the fourth grade, because you have to have learned the tables of multiplication. And therefore, it's exactly like this. If you reach Anahata, you move to the next level, whatever the next level is. If you don't reach Anahata, you are going to do this cosmic cycle once more. You simply repeat until you graduate. Anahata Chakra is graduation, is the final sash exam in the end of this cosmic cycle. And therefore, gurus attach a lot of importance to Anahata Chakra because they read the signs which come from the great seers and gurus and they simply say that this is important for this cycle of evolution. People say, what if I reach Ajna Chakra? What if I reach Sahasrara? Good for you. Congratulations. You've gone above your grade. It's exactly like a whiz kid that learns the table of multiplication in the kindergarten. And when he is in the third grade, he can do algebra and he can do analysis. Yeah, there are a few of those kids and they are geniuses. Know? So some people can be ahead of the flock. But for most people, there is a standard level. That standard level, most of my teachers agreed, most of the teachers that I met in my life agreed with this, and it is my feeling today as well, that Anahata Chakra represents simply a standard. It's the red line. And in the end of this cosmic cycle, you're going to find out if you are above the red line or below the red line promoted or not yet promoted. It's not a tragedy if you have to repeat a cycle, but it's, it's a sort of a carrot. It's a sort of a standard 
that you put in front of you and you say, I need to do this in the next 50 years. I need to do this. This is one of my goals because the universe sets this goal for me. So, of course, this shows intuitively a lot in humanity. It shows in the signs of evolution. When I'm talking about evolution and when we do the metaphysical workshop here in Agama, I quote the different signs of evolution. And there I quote Ludwig van Beethoven. Ludwig van Beethoven says, for me, there is just one sign of evolution. Like somebody here says, I'm an evolved human being. Evolved means far from the baboons, far from the gorillas, you know, because if you are not evolved, it means you freshly come out of a gorilla. But if you are evolved, it means it's long, long time ago that you have been a gorilla and you are closer to the devas and to the angels. You are closer to the under end of the scale. Ludwig van Beethoven says, any one of you claims that you are evolved? He says, for me, humble Ludwig van Beethoven, for me there is just one sign of evolution. And he says, that's goodness. 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 Ludwig van Beethoven says, you, you are evolved if I see that you are really, really, really a good person. If you are not good, you are a chimpanzee. That's, that's how Beethoven evaluated people. Beethoven is not my guru and not your guru. He's just a man who composed beautiful, beautiful music coming from a beautiful, beautiful heart, coming from a beautiful, beautiful soul. But it's interesting to see what a musician of a certain refinement felt like a standard for it. So evolution automatically, as a, we see it in the collective subconscious mind, that people equate evolution with a good heart, with a great heart. Because this goodness is something which comes from the heart. The gift of the Holy Spirit, as listed in the Bible, I was... Looking at this earlier, no, announced by Paul in one of his famous letters. No, and I don't know if I find them. But he says somewhere in the, his letter to the Galatians. But he says, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. And he says, I warn you against this. Those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the spirit, the fruit, so evolution... But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So, again, we see that generally humanity on various meridians, when it refers to what comes from the human evolution, it refers to a lot of values out of which many of them are related to Anahata Chakra. In India, 
fundamental tantric text like Kularnava Tantra describes the characteristics of the real disciple. Who is a real disciple and who is a real guru, who is a real teacher. And among the characteristics of the real disciple, they mention aspiration, the Ishvara Pranidhana, which comes from the heart, the longing for the absolute, the longing for the truth, for the oneness. They mention faith and devotion, being helpful to all people, being grateful, thoughtful, being indifferent to praise, but open to criticism from others. Like Jesus, who said, don't see the straw in the eye of other people, rather see the beam in your own eye. So, a, a different attitude rather than seeing you, you, you. Who is guilty for the fact that you cannot have a proper relationship? My mother, because she didn't love me enough. My father, because he spanked me. My uncle, because he sexually abused me. The answer in old Christianity is always here. Mea culpa. The fact that I'm fucked up, it's mea culpa. It's nobody's fault. It's always my fault. That's why you can, the today's social system always wants to point fingers. You are guilty. He is guilty. Everybody is guilty. The world is guilty. That's a way of running from your own heart. When you are in Anahata Chakra, the fault is always here. You may have straws in your eyes. But the beam in my eye is huge compared to the straw in your eyes. So why should I start talking about your problems when my problems are huge? Then it's mea culpa. It's always. That's what Gurdjieff said, although he was not teaching according to Anahata, he still was going according to spiritual principles. And Gurdjieff said, the inferior man is the man of tea culpa, and the superior man is the man of mea culpa. But to have mea culpa, you need to be humble. And humbleness is one of the crucial virtues of Anahata Chakra, which today is not cultivated at all. People are afraid of humbleness. People run from humbleness like from the devil. But the funny thing is that the devil is exactly the opposite of humbleness. So people run in the wrong direction. Humbleness is desirable, not the opposite, not pride. So indifferent to praise, say Kulanava Tantra, but opposite, open to criticism from others, speaking moderately and with a smile that is good and true. All these are showing a certain kind of the model which is given in Kulanava Tantra is how did the old gurus love to see their disciples? Faithful, devoted, with a true and beautiful smile, helpful to all, open to criticism from the others, and all the rest which I said here. So, definitely in some spiritual lineages, we have this culture of the heart, which unfortunately today, it gets lost. It gets lost. I come from a country where traditionally there was quite a bit of Anahata Chakra. The culture from where I come 400 years ago was very, very much on Anahata Chakra. Today, when you go in the same culture, very elderly people, they still live in their heart culture. And the rest, it's capitalism, competition, take care of yourself, 
and all these kinds of things in which like Anahata Chakra is like, it's not practical, it's not competitive enough. But remember, you are going to see as I'm going through this with you, that actually this is a trap because you seem that you win by being more competitive and especially going to Manipura and then you lose everything. Then you lose your soul. That's what Jesus was telling to his disciples. What use is there to a man if he wins, if he conquers half of the world, if in the process he loses his soul? Then you are like the Roman emperors. Half of the world is in the fist of your hand and you've got no soul and you live in hell. People like Nero and Caligula and this kind of people, they may have had power, but they lived in hell. They were tormented souls. Their life shows an agony without end. Because it's not enough to be competitive and to win, 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 win. You always have to win. Actually, the humble person learns how to lose. In the Tibetan yoga, there are precepts for disciples, and there, are, there is a one chapter, which is the ten signs of a superior man. What the Tibetan lamas and gurus, what did they think that they are the ten signs of a superior man? And one of them is to accept defeat for oneself and to let other people win is a sign of a superior man. No? Like you are competing for money, business, a sexual partner, and other things. And usually people would walk over dead bodies for these things. And the Tibetan lamas say, if you are truly superior, then you stand one step back and you say, why should we fight for it? You win. It's okay. You win. And what about you? I will die in peace. I, God will give me something. The universe will provide. I'm totally confident in this universe. I'm not struggling. I'm not pushing forward like this. That's, of course, very contrary to the way in which people do business, for example. Because in business, you have to blow your trumpet constantly. Me, 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 look at me, and so on. It's like, no, that's also not a spiritual thing in this way. So, I want to make you understand this, because you're going to say, what's the importance of this ultimately? The importance of this is that Anahata creates a certain typology of spiritual practitioner and a certain typology of life. That means, try to compare in your mind an enlightened being from Japan I don't know, Dogen or some of these great masters, no? and Francis of Assisi or whoever life you know, you know, Peter and Paul or any, any of the great Christian mystics who are famous for their heart. Because you have to understand one little thing. People, spiritual practitioners, are not constantly in samadhi. Many of you have spiritual dreams, and I admire you for your spiritual dreams and for your aspiration. And those spiritual dreams sometimes are unrealistic, because they are a little bit like a 
Walt Disney movie. No, you live in a sort of a fantasy. And many people think, I'm going to be like Buddha, I'm going to be like Shankaracharya, I'm going to be like Abhinava Gupta, and I'm going to do yoga, and I'm going to rise my Kundalini, and it's going to hit my Sahasrara, and I will have, after a few years, my first state of Samadhi, and then after a few days or weeks, I'm going to have my second state of Samadhi, and then I'm going to make my states of Samadhi almost daily, and daily, and more, and longer, and my goal is to be in Samadhi all the time. That doesn't happen. I just want to give you a cold shower. That's not the way it goes. If you stay in Nirvikalpa Samadhi more than 28 days, you leave your body. Ramakrishna almost died in Samadhi because he stayed on and off for six months in Samadhi. Because the life on earth is not meant that you sit cross-legged with your eyes rolled up and you sit in Samadhi. Then you just become a sort of a useless citizen of the earth. You are breathing our air and not giving anything in exchange. No? Then why don't you just go? If you have gone in nirvana, then okay, stop your heart and just go. It's more honest. It's more like you don't want to be here, obviously. Because all day long you are just sitting like this and you are gone. So be gone. It's fine. Be gone in nirvana and that's it. Many yogis and many mystics did that as well. But Buddha, when he reached Nirvana, you obviously you realize that Buddha didn't reach Nirvana only under the Bodhi tree. Because Buddha was meditating practically every day. He lived on the face of the earth for another 40 years and he did meditation with his disciples. He taught them meditation. He taught them the Vipassana. He taught them a lot of other things. And he taught them self-discipline. And he created the first Buddhist monasteries. The Sangha. The Buddhist community. So Buddha obviously was still into the spiritual practice. After he reached Nirvana. So you reach. And you come out of it. And you reach. And you come out of it. Ramakrishna was upset. If he spent too much time in Samadhi. Because he says what uses Samadhi to me now. Except of the fact that I'm enjoying myself enormously. Every time when I go in Samadhi, it's like there's eternal happiness. I'm in bliss. What do you get from this? You just look at me enough. If I would be sitting here in Samadhi for one hour, you'd say, interesting man, I've never seen anything like this. It's really weird. This Swami. And, but after one hour, you'll start scratching your noses and saying, uh, what now? Will he actually say a word or something? Or will he just keep looking like a smiling puppet? And we assume that he is in some great ecstasy inside his head or inside his crown chakra. No, like, what's the use for me? If Swamiji is not teaching me Padahastasana and Pranayama and how to do Brahmacharya, then he is useless if he is just sitting there and smiling for himself. We expect more for some. So, you actually, you want me outside of Samadhi. Inside Samadhi, I'm just like a painting on a wall. You can take a photo of me in Samadhi and put it on the wall. But that's what, how much use you get from that. 
And Ramakrishna noticed it and Ramakrishna said, when I'm in Samadhi, I cannot talk to you. I cannot explain to you about the divine nature. I cannot give you enthusiasm. I cannot sing bhajans and kirtans with you. And I cannot inflame your heart. I'm sitting there like a smiling log. And, you know, I, some people say maybe he's just hysterical. Maybe it's a form of catalepsy or some brain condition or this, you know. It's not even clear what that person is doing, you know, in being there. That's why, of course, the great masters and this, they said, yeah, you go, but then you come. And you go again, and then you come. And you go again, and then you come. So part of your life is in meditation, and part of your life is in the world. When you come in the world, exception made of some very, 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 very great examples, Allah, Jesus, you are not in Samadhi when you are eating breakfast. Yes, it is assumed that Ramakrishna and Jesus and the likes of them, they were in Samadhi even when they were eating breakfast. Those are extremely rare cases, even in the world of yoga. People like Swami Shivananda and Paramahamsa Yogananda and the likes of them, they were one hour in Samadhi, 23 hours doing Karma Yoga. One hour in Samadhi, 23 hours doing Karma Yoga. So the problem is when you, in those 23 hours, what is your dominant chakra? Because you are not in Sahasrara anymore. You are not in Ajna. You go up, up, and you have what is called today in modern psychology, it's called the peak experience. Samadhi is a peak experience. So you have a peak experience, which may look odd to the people around you. And then when you come back, you come back. And when you come back, Kundalini is going down again. Where does it go down? That is exactly what I'm trying to tell you. If you are a Japanese Zen master, you live your daily life in Manipura. If you are Saint Francis of Assisi, you live your daily life in Anahata. For everybody, there is a dominant chakra, which is their fallback. Like when you go in the peak experience and then you fall back. What's your daily level of consciousness? That's why I was telling this important statement for you to remember that Anahata Chakra creates a certain typology of spiritual practitioner. If you imagine those of you that think big, those of you that have great dreams, and you think, in this life, I'm still young, I still have energy, I will try to experience the state of Samadhi. To see what these guys are talking about. Not only this Swami Vivekananda Sarasvati, but all these people, Swami Shivananda, Paramahamsa Yogananda, Ramakrishna, all these mad men and mad women of yoga, what do they keep talking about? It attracts me. I would like to experience this peak experience and so on. And then let's imagine for a second that five years from now, ten years from now, twenty years from now, you have... You have made it. You are at that level. With the yoga practice, things are possible. That's what the yoga practice is made for. Georg Feuerstein, when he wrote his PhD on yoga, he called it yoga, the technology of ecstasy. 
That's what yoga is. It's a view on yoga. Yoga, from another, from a certain standpoint, yoga is a technology of ecstasy. Because if you do your headstand, you stimulate your pineal gland and your pituitary body. If you do pranayama and you do udhyana bandha and this, you stimulate God knows what sympathetic, parasympathetic. Eh? And eventually, ping, something blows in your head and you will have ecstasy. It's like you press a button. It's a technology of ecstasy. How to obtain ecstasy by standing on your head and breathing or not breathing or whatever else the yogis do. So, for a second, visualize, project that you have done it. In the 23 hours per day where you are not in that, what kind of person do you want to be? Would you like to be like Jesus and like Francis of Assisi or like Teresa of Avila, just to take a female name? Or would you like to be like Dogen, Dogen or whatever his name was? Uh, I'm talking about a Japanese patriarch of Zen. How do you see yourself? Japanese style, Asian style, this Manipura style, because most of the Asian types of spirituality, they are centered around Manipura, or one in the heart. Because that's what's going to result from the next 10 years or 20 years of spiritual practice. If every day you work on Anahata and from Anahata you go to Sahasrara, then when you fall back from Sahasrara, you fall in Anahata. And then to the other people, you will be in Anahata. If you work all day long and you do five hours of Aikido every day, or Karate Do or Kung Fu, then when you come back, you come back to your Hara. Because that's your platform. That's from where you start all day long. I'm not saying that it's wrong to be on Manipura. I'm just simply saying for you not to have unrealistic expectations. Like I do Kung Fu and on top of Kung Fu I do Zazen and I expect to be like Francis of Assisi. Never. Never. Because you never cultivate anahata does not come as a result of the peak experience. It comes as a result of your daily practice and daily way of being. Anahata is your fallback, is your safety net when you are not up there where you are down here. Of course the tragedy is that most people and most of you here in the hall, your safety net is not even Manipura. It's Vadistana, unfortunately. So most people, their safety net, even if they have a peak experience, then the next day they are Vadistanistic, confused, emotional, it's full moon, it's this, it's that. Oh, my boyfriend divorced me or left me. You know, it's just a hell made of emotions and all sorts of tiny things like this. So... If you would be having a pure vertical Manipura and you will be like Dogen or like, I don't know, Gigin Funaronsky or something like this, then you would say, you know, it's like, man, you are an outstanding person. I don't know how deep you've gone in your Samadhi, but even when you are not in Samadhi in the daily life, you are really an outstanding person. If not, so of course, don't understand that Manipura is wrong, but... I think the most important thing which I signal to people about this, because people say, so what's the difference? Yeah, I can be on Manipura. Most of the time I am on Manipura. I come from, 
I don't know which country, to give you an example, where Manipura is a bit strong, like some aspects of the British society, or some aspects of the Israeli society, or some... I have a strong Manipura, and uh, yeah, I like to be on Manipura. No, why not the Italians, the followers of the Roman Empire, this Roman justice and Roman civilization and all this, which is Manipuristic, it's a fire thing. This is how the Roman Empire has been created based on fire. Most of these fiery cultures, they build an empire. Roman Empire, British Empire, Austro-Hungarian Empire and Kingdom, Russian Empire, American Empire. The, the countries that don't have a strong Manipura, they cannot make empires when their time is coming, because there is no expansion, there is no conqueror spirit there. The Mongols, even the Mongols made an empire at the time of Genghis Khan. You know, it's an empire. China is becoming a big empire. You know, Japan, they have an emperor, therefore there is the Japanese empire. It's not a kingdom of Japan. It's not a king in Japan. It's an emperor. So it's the empire of Japan. So the things could go a lot in this direction. But one of the most important things from a yoga standpoint which I can tell you is both a spiritual experience and a spiritual culture. One of the most important things is this. If you develop a good enough Anahata Chakra in your lives, either you make it to Samadhi or you don't make it to Samadhi. Again, some of you might be afraid of spirituality and you are listen to, listening to me politely like, yeah, yeah, Swami is ranting about his nirvana things. But honest to God, if you put me in front of a mirror right now, I'll tell you, I'm me doing five hours of yoga per day just to reach nirvana. No, 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 no. I'm not interested in that. I met hundreds of people in my life who told me, Swamiji, I'm not interested in enlightenment. You have my respect. Like everybody is free to choose their path in life. I am talking for the spiritual people who want to, because that door is open. But on the other hand, there are people who have much more modest ambitions. And modesty sometimes is very welcome. You know, like, I have this goal in this life. Good. I respect your goal, and I'm with you for you. And if 20 years from now, you will change your goal and you will want to upgrade it, that's also a good choice. Let's live in the present. Let's live where we are and we what we are. What is the goal that you have right now? So in this goal, either you have a big goal or not, Anahata Chakra has one fundamental psychological talent. As you saw in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Again, what are the gifts of the Spirit? Joy, patience, endurance, modesty, and all those things. A person that has some of those qualities is a person that enjoys contentment, love, forgiveness. And this includes also self-forgiveness and self-love. The people that have a Manipura typology and no Anahata, they are tough to themselves. And maybe you don't know how the old Zen teachers of Japan are. But you don't need to go to Japan. You can stay in Thailand. Just go through the shops and the monasteries around and look at the old practitioners. Almost every Thai shop has the photo of some old monk 
which is supposed to be some titanic Buddhist teacher. Most of these old monks that you see through the shops in Kopangan, they are like this. Honest to God, you don't need to be a great psychologist to ask, is this person happy in their daily life? It looks like constipation to me. It looks like abdominal pain. You know, I don't want to offend this Buddhist culture, but the typology which is cultivated is like a typology based on self-discipline and willpower. Manipura, Manipura, Manipura. Do you know what it takes that you should be 70 years old, seeing your death coming? You've got some spiritual successes, and you live in a monastery, and you still cannot eat solid food after 12 o'clock at noon, like all your life is made of discipline, regulations, tough Spartan lifestyle, and you are 70 years old, and either you say, man, I've got my nirvana, your discipline sucks, you know, I don't even need this discipline, and I'm sitting in the monastery here, and I have to pretend, because otherwise, I'm a very bad monk, you know, so I'm like, mm, yeah, it's time for some discipline, and so on, and like, and either I fucked up my life and I didn't reach nirvana, and then why the heck am I practicing discipline when death is coming tomorrow? Or I have already reached nirvana, and then again, why the fuck do I keep practicing this discipline when I don't even need it anymore? The Manipura style of person, when they get old, they get very grumpy and unhappy. It's a grumpy typology. Because they don't have any forgiveness to themselves. One of my friends, I can call him, I seldom call people friends, but this man behaved like a friend, an Israeli businessman who had uh, apartments and condos in New York, in London, like we're talking about multi-million dollar business people, and who was flying three times per week to New York, to Tel Aviv, to London, to this people in IT, you know, with a lot of money. This man was a super intelligent man, and he also had a common sense, a spiritual common sense. So when I was doing workshops in Israel and so on, he came to all of them, and we became friends, and we even did a few trips together. He visited me in Europe at some point and so on. So it was becoming close. And then when he opened up and he realized we, I feel friendship towards him, he asked me, he said, Swamiji, I have a problem, which I didn't dare to ask you, but now that we are closer, maybe I can ask you. And he said, what should I do? Because I'm unhappy. I have a wife which is allergic and having all sorts of modern women's problems, you know, and she, sol she, sol she solves her happiness by being a shopaholic, you know. Fortunately, I make enough money so that my wife can go and buy the whole shop every day, you know, and so on. She, she practices shopping therapy, you know, on my money, which is okay, you know, I've got enough of those, you know. So, like, my wife is not very happy. I have a teenage daughter, or two, I think he had two teenage daughters, you know, and so on. And he said, I'm making a truckload of money, I'm intelligent, I'm reading books, watching movies, I'm enjoying, and I'm unhappy with myself. He said, all the time, I think that I'm not good enough, that I'm a loser. This man was really rich, at least materially, he was definitely not a loser. But he said, you know, in my inside, 
I'm not happy. I can see I'm not happy. Then I told him, my dear, you are talking about the lack of Anahata Chakra. You are a successful man with a big Manipura. No Anahata. Ana this lack of Anahata, for example, makes you be perfectionistic. Perfectionism is a form of lack of Anahata. Because if you are having Anahata, you say, oh, today I wanted to bring you also a quote from Kahlil Gibran uh, or from, uh, from Rumi, and I forgot it. No? And then something in me says, Swamiji, you have fucked up the whole satsang. You know? you say, I'm unhappy. But if I have Anahata, I'm saying, you know, God forgive me. You know, I'm imperfect. I'm just a child of God. Yeah, I'm absent-minded and I'm sanguine and this. I can forgive myself because I can love myself. Anahata chakra, when it's put in your psychological ensemble, it makes you capable to love yourself. Rumi has a verse where he says, he speaks to God and he says, I love you, I love myself, I love myself, I love you. The person who has no anahata, they cannot love God because they cannot love themselves. We think that egoistic people love themselves too much. Actually, egoistic people don't know what love is. They are attached to their ego, but they don't love themselves. Like this businessman, Israeli friend of mine, they actually despise themselves and hate themselves. They don't like themselves. A great Christian mystic said very clearly, if a person would really love themselves, that's a test for you. This is a test for you to verify tonight if you really love yourself, because you maybe think that you love yourself. A Christian mystic said, if you really loved yourself, you would wish to give to yourself the greatest gift which exists in this universe, which is immortality. Like, if you really love yourself, wouldn't you like to exist forever? So, if you really loved yourself, you will try to save your soul and make yourself immortal. And therefore, only the people that have spiritual aspiration actually love themselves. The other people say, no, no, actually you don't love yourself. Manipuristic people, they can be very selfish, and then you see them smoking. When you smoke, don't you kill yourself? How idiotic do you have to be to not know that cigarettes kill you? It's even written on the cigarette packages. They put photos, ugly photos, just to convince you that cigarettes kill. And people still keep buying this shit and smoking. You know, what does it show? Every smoker in this room and in this world is a person who secretly hates themselves. And you are trying, your subconscious mind is trying to kill you. You don't like yourself. If you'd like yourself, you wouldn't do that thing for a second. That's why self-love is real love. Augustine, a very stern Christian saint who was a libertine and a sexual libertine, and then he converted and became a saint, he was asked how to do, you know, how to, how far can we go with the personal freedoms and this. And Saint Augustine, who was a Christian saint, remember, he said it very clearly. He said, love God and do what you want. In the moment when you love God, you can do what you want. Because a person who loves God slash loves himself or herself will never do anything bad. The love is keeping you from falling into that darkness. 
That's why, please remember, I think that's one of the most important things. If any one of you here will choose to be an enlightened being or a seeker, a spiritual seeker, let's tone it down. If you choose to be a spiritual seeker and your dominant chakra, your daily chakra is Manipura or Vishuddha or anything else, one thing I can guarantee, you will not be happy in the daily life. You will have a grumpy, perfectionistic, intolerant psychology. Only Anahata Chakra, when it's mixed with spirituality, it gives in the human being a sort of tolerance, including to yourself. Like you can forgive yourself. You can tolerate yourself. You can love yourself. Believe me, we are so imperfect. I have visited in my life spiritual teachers, authentic, many of them, of various traditions. And they, all of them wanted to be so humble and so invisible. And they said, why do you keep visiting me? Why do you guys keep seeing me? He said, I'm just a rotten old man. I'm worth nothing. And you guys come and visit me like I have some supreme wisdom to offer. But you cannot see what a, what a piece of garbage I am. Like this man and others, again, I'm talking about two, three of them, they cultivated an extreme humbleness. But they were not hating themselves, they were not destroying themselves. They said, I'm a piece of garbage, and may God have mercy on my soul. In the moment when you can say that, then you are not, because otherwise you say, I'm a piece of garbage, and I think I deserve a just punishment from God. In the moment when you said just that's Manipura. If you are asking for justice, justice is a value on Manipura. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Because I am so miserable and unworthy, may the universe give me what I deserve. In Anahata is, I am unworthy. May the universe give me love and forgiveness, unworthy as I am. Ultimately, you forgive yourself with your own mind. Those of you who go to the second level of Agama teachings, the first course there is called the Laws of Mind. And it shows how the yogis have understood the laws of mind with the conscious and the subconscious. And one of the 30 laws of mind says very clearly, your mind, your own conscious and subconscious mind, is the one which is your judge and which frees you or keeps you in slavery. It's a value of the mind. I have a very beautiful example, which I plan to give later, but it fits here, with a story from the fathers of the desert. There was a lazy monk, like the monks who lived in the fathers of the desert, in the monasteries, and so on. These are the early Christian monks from the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th century AD, and who lived in today's Israel, in today's Sinai Peninsula, and in today's Egypt. In those areas, there were isolated monks and mystics and nuns and so on, who lived in extraordinary, uh, in extraordinary spiritual discipline. And one of these monks, he lived in a monastery, and he was considered the laziest monk in the monastery. Like, he didn't stand up for meditation, he didn't come and do his prayers, he, didn't, he was lazy. He was trying to sneak through life, like, in this way. And then he was about to die, and he was happy. 
He said, my death is coming, my freedom is coming, my... And the other said, are you kidding us? Like, did we miss something? Like, we know that you are one of us who never reached anything exceptional in your spiritual practice. Because, simply, let's say it straight, you are lazy. We were doing prayer, and you were stuffing your face, or sleeping, or something, you know? So it's like... And then they said, how comes that you are not afraid of death? Because in the whole monastery, you are supposed to be the one shitting your pants most. You know, because death is indeed coming, and you are totally unprepared for death. So can you explain this, mister? Like, are you a total idiot? Or how come that you, you know? And this monk then, he told them the secret of a lifetime. He said, from the beginning of my practice, noticing that I don't have this kind of discipline and willpower that you guys have, then I decided on another discipline for me. And he said, I read carefully the words of Jesus. And Jesus said, judge not so that you will not be judged yourself. Because Jesus said, by the measure with which you measure to other people, by the same measure God will measure to you when you die. And that's your mind. If I have a critical mind and constantly, nah, nah, eh, 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 when I die, the same mind will look at me. And then I will look at me and I say, nah, 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 nah. Hell. That's the conclusion. Go to hell. That's what you deserve. No? So my mind is my judge. No? And this guy said, all my life in the last 30 years, I tried to practice this, that never I judged anybody. I never condemned in my mind anybody. I, it's very hard. If you'll try, you'll see. No, it's like I tried to stay in this state. And he said, because I succeeded, now I'm happy because now I'm going to God and God, according to his own promise, God will not judge me. They were amazed. This is Anahata Chakra. This is a form of Anahata Chakra. No? Like, spirituality is easy. You don't need to do 15 hours of meditation like Milarepa. It's just enough to not judge anybody. Ever. Which is, of course, as difficult as doing 15 hours of yoga every day. Only that the difficulty is somewhere else. Milarepa used his weapons, this anonymous old man, he used his skills, his talents. This is Anahata Chakra. So, to, to conclude, because it's getting late, first of all is this. When you, 30 years from now, when you will be an advanced spiritual seeker, or whatever you will be, do you want to be happy with yourself? Do you want to look in the mirror and laugh, smile, have joy? Then work on anahata. Because if you go on the path of zazen, you'll be like this. If you like the perspective of being like this, then go ahead. It's fine. It's a choice. It's a personal choice. But look at the results. Because every religion, every lineage generates people of a certain kind. And try to find out what kind you want to be, and don't try to ride on two horses at the same time. Choose your future. 
your your practice determines your future and who you are going to be the aspiration of anahata chakra that's another virtue why i recommend anahata in yoga a lot is that anahata gives a special kind of aspiration jesus has defined the three types he said there are people who do the will of what's the will of god the will of god is that you evolve you have been created so that you become conscious that you wake up all these animalistic lives and animalistic lives they have to end into nirvana sooner or later so therefore what god wants the will of god is for you to wake up the divine consciousness is waiting patiently for thousands of lifetimes where you run in circles confused until one day you become like buddha you say now i stop running in circles now it's time to wake up my time has come so the jesus says there are people who do the will of god like god said thou shall not kill yeah why not sometimes you really feel like you want to kill some bastards and so on you're like why if you don't kill then you do the will of god and jesus says some people do the will of god because they are afraid of god karma or whatever and then this says jesus these are like slaves to god god is ruling them with a whip out of fear they don't dare to go astray then he says they are the second category that do the will of god because they started understanding the system and they know that if you behave harmonious within some rule within some limits then you gain a lot because you don't die because of karma you don't get a cancer you don't get this you don't get like for example if you eat too much meat you kill too many animals and from all those animals that you have killed to eat even if you don't eat kill them with your own hand but you paid for them to be killed so they are on your account for all the animals which you kill to eat you are going to get a cancer in your intestines the blood of those animals is screaming for revenge they killed me they killed me they killed me the bastards killed me to eat me and too many animals if if an animal is not important then 10000 animals will be important enough to get you a cancer and therefore some people understand this and they say wait a second then i get vegetarian if i get vegetarian i'll never have a cancer but that's not because they are compassionate or something it's because they are smart they understood how to play with these rules and jesus says those are the merchants of god those are tradesmen those are people who simply learned how to manipulate the system and they get the good things out of it and then he says there are also the third category of people who do the will of god out of love like i've got nothing to get no benefit to get i've got no fear of god and still i'm doing the right thing because it's like karma yoga i don't expect anything in exchange but i do the right thing and jesus says those are the sons of god like the son does the will of a father out of love not because the father is a master of slaves nor because the father is paying him to do it giving him benefits it's simply an act of love out of love 
I do. I, I feel that that's what I have to do. That's why the aspiration of Anahata is of this kind. The aspiration from Manipura is like you are making benefits. You are a businessman bargaining with God. The aspiration from the low chakras is an animalistic aspiration where you are afraid. You are afraid of death. You are afraid of pain. You are afraid of loneliness. And then you try to reach God out of fear, which is good in the first stages. But ultimately, when it gets here, then it simply becomes an act of love. What do you expect to get for all these things? Nothing. Nothing. There is a scene with one of the great Christian saints where the devil appears to him in a vision or in whichever way. And he says, why do you keep praying there to God? You are going to get nothing in the end. And the saint retorted to him. And he said, whatever I'm going to get or not get, you are below me on the rung of evolution. So just fucking go to hell back where you come from. No, like it doesn't, you don't try, he was trying to discourage him. Why do you keep praying 12 hours per day? You'll get nothing from praying 12 hours per day. But that was a test for him to see if he really did it without any motivation. I don't pray 12 hours per day because I want to get something. I pray 12 hours per day because I cannot not to pray 12 hours per day. I pray 12 hours per day simply because I want to be in the presence of God. And whenever I say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, I'm in the presence of Jesus. And that's all I want. I don't, I'm not expecting anything from it. It's just like a drug, like a sweet drug for my heart. And that's all I need. I, I'm not expecting any reward from it. Therefore, the aspiration of Anahata is particular. And the last thing which I want to emphasize, there are actually three sentences after that which I want to comment for you. The most important thing is the important value of humbleness. I'm saying this specially because this is not understood very well in the West. Because in the Western cultures, especially the Germanic, Scandinavic, Anglo-Saxon, even France to a large extent, most of these cultures, Spanish to a large extent, there is very little Anahata. And because of this, people are actually not cultivating humbleness. In all the environments where there is a strong Anahata, there is a lot of humbleness, and the humbleness comes first. Mahatma Gandhi, who had a lot of Anahata, stirring up the Indian spirit and at the same time being a Libra, astrologically, an air sign, and who developed a lot of Anahata because the people of India said, yes, this man is the only real man among all this bunch of politicians. And that's why the peasants of India, they called Gandhi Mahatma, great soul. Nehru and although they were not great soul, they were politicians, egoistic people. But Gandhi was Mahatma. No? And Mahatma Gandhi, who was, you know what the Romans say, Vox Populi, Vox Dei. The voice of people is the voice of God. When a whole nation like India takes a man and says, this is Mahatma, even the yogis of India have acknowledged him. Shivananda, Aurobindo, they have said, this is the voice of the gods. This man emerged from politics, and he was just a lawyer trying to make a case, but look what a heart he has. So Mahatma Gandhi, who is a model for the modern heart, he said humility is the solid foundation of all the other virtues. 
like if you are non-violent and you are proud that you are non-violent you fucked up really bad if you are truthful and you tell the truth and if you are proud that you speak the truth i'm always speaking the truth you are on the side of the devil you've missed the value of your truthfulness because you boast about it and you are proud about it in christianity those of you who have seen hollywood movies you've seen that there are seven capital sins such as murder and the others avarice and so on the capital sins are supposed to be really bad but you know that there are sins which are worse than that that's not the highest level of sins there are the ultimate sins which are called the sins against the holy spirit and the worst of all of them is pride in christ in jewish christian and islamic mysticism the devil satan is a fallen angel that has fallen because of pride the cause of fall of the devil is the pride not the murder not the gluttony not the lust all these are kindergarten pride is the top pride can bring you in the camp of the devil and people are i'm very proud of this i'm very proud you should hit yourself over the mouth when you say such a stupid thing don't be proud proud why should you be proud pride is a demonic thing the actual value is humbleness you should be humble which is the opposite of pride that's why the the pride is the foundation of all the other virtues whatever i'm a brahmachari <laughs> you don't know how well i control my sexual energy you are a demon you are just a sexy demon you are a gigolo you are a prostitute you are something you know you control your sexual energy but you are proud you should control your sexual energy and be humble about it that's the real greatness that's the real spirituality not with pride pride doesn't belong in spirituality and especially in the spirituality of anahata chakra and thus i was saying that analyzing how much love is there in us let's just see love according to the great experts you know for sure this one which i am going to read to you because it's a great classic but listening to the description of love according to paul who was a killer of men and a persecutor of men and then he entered the state of samadhi through grace from jesus and then he became an anahata saint of course he must have had great predispositions when jews when jesus chose him for this mission but so he did and then he wrote among others about love try to listen to this half of a page of paul about love and try to ask yourselves how many of these things did you feel in your life how many of these virtues did you experience to which extent can you identify with love if i speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love i am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal 
if I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, I give to the poor. That's not from the heart. I renounce everything. The Buddhists do that as well. I'm not saying that they don't have a heart. It doesn't come as an act from the heart necessarily. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I am nothing. That's one of the great spiritual authorities of the world has to say. And now he comes and he describes it. He says, love is patient. Like, are you patient? If you are not patient, it's a big question mark. Why aren't you patient? Because love is patient. Love is patient. Love is kind. Are you kind? It does not envy. Do you envy? Who did you envy last time? Where was your envy? What do you envy? It does not envy. It does not boast. When did you boast last time? Forgetting to be humble. It is not proud. Because it's full of humbleness, of course. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Like, do you keep record of wrongs? Do you have some people who say, this person in the last 10 years has really, really upset me? That's not love. Love doesn't do that. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And finally, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, and a child means spiritually a child, like not mature spiritually, without love, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then, like when you reach spiritual maturity, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is what a person who lived a life of love has to say about love. And thus, there are so many innumerable stories about this I was telling you about the fathers of the desert here is one more the fathers of the desert they were living this extreme heart where they don't want to they didn't want to even judge like in the moment when you judge somebody and you say oh did you hear about uh, uh, whom to say 
Popeye the Sailor or something, a name which is not here. Is there any Oscar in here, in the hall? Did you hear about Oscar, that Oscar is a sinner, and Oscar is a liar, and Oscar, you know? Like, how do you know? Who are you to judge Oscar, that Oscar is more miserable than me and you, because somebody caught him lying? Like, do you know the whole story? Do you know what was it like? Who gives you the right to place yourself above somebody else to just say, oh, but, uh, you know, I'm superior in this way. No? And even if you are superior on Anahata, but you are not practicing this. So this old man was a great saint and he was having uh, great, some siddhis and great grace upon him. And then he goes to a meeting and he meets with other monks and he says, what about this? What about that? And then he says, what about that fellow? You know, how is he? And the guys tell him, oh, that fellow is living in sin. He is badly fallen. He is like in a pathetic condition. And this old man goes like, oh, like, you know, like he is approving of it. And he felt in that moment that all the grace which he acquired in 20 years of prayer, it instantly stopped. Like he felt butt naked because he dared to just do like this. <sighs> you know, like, you know, poor guy. No, he was condescending to that guy. And the history says, then he went into the desert again and he prayed for 10 years before the grace came back to him. Just because he became arrogant, like, ah, yeah, that guy is a fallen guy. This is the path of the heart when taken to extreme levels. When, ah, when you use Manipura, when you use Ajna, when there can be multiple things. In yoga, we don't practice only the heart. But these people were practicing 99% heart, 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 heart. And for them, this was very, very relevant. Fasting and eating out of love. There is a quote from St. Peter of Damascus, which I truly wanted to bring to you, but I gave the book to the people who did the Bhakti retreat. And there, there is, it says, there are people who are fasting, and they are fast. The right motivation is that they fast because they want other people to eat the food which they would have eaten. People say, I'm fasting to clean my digestive system. That's an egoistic way of fasting. But there are people who say, I fast, because there are children who die of hunger on the planet Earth, and what I don't eat maybe goes to some hungry people somewhere. That's a way of fasting. It's another way of fasting. Even fasting and eating can be done out of love, with love, with humbleness. In the prayer of the heart, the famous prayer of the heart, it's a formula which constantly induces the idea of asking for help, but proclaiming yourself first as a sinner, in the first stage of the prayer, at least. And it says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you don't say a sinner, then you are arrogant, because you think you are better than that. It is written by the Jewish mystics, and that the angels in heaven are singing praise to God. The mystics have been in high states where they heard the choirs of angels praising God. 
and one of the songs which is classical in Judaism and is taken in Christianity as well from the Jewish mystics is this song in which uh, I approximately I I translated in English I've never seen it in English but it it says like something like this it says it says holy god holy deathless one have mercy on us no holy god holy strong one holy deathless one have mercy on us and the same mystics they said the difference between the angels and the demons is that the demons don't say the last sentence the demons are getting goosebumps in front of god and they envy him how strong and shining he is and they say holy god holy strong one holy deathless one and their mind says may we be like you you know like we envy you we want to you know the humble person says have mercy on us this position where you place yourself in modesty in humbleness this is the play the the prayer of the heart and the path of the heart and i have known so innumerable stories of humbleness because i come from an environment where anahata was being practiced and i remember just one to give you as an example there was a story in a monastery a monastery somewhere in moldavia and in this monastery there were like 100 monks and uh, when it came to the easter the easter has something which happened yesterday or something which means the starting of the lent yesterday or the day before yesterday there started 49 days where people don't eat animal products they go vegan 100% that's called the lent and it just started 2 days ago and it ends in the day of the easter on the easter day it ends on easter you can eat eggs and whatever lamb and whatever easter is not a vegan day but until easter till midnight of the day before the saturday before easter it's lent right now so some people have gone in christian countries totally vegan for for as a discipline as a form of purification and discipline in this monastery they started the first week by doing black fasting like taking only water they didn't eat anything for seven days every year when it was february like this they started this lent with seven days of full-on fasting imitating jesus who fasted for 40 days so they did the lent and the whole monastery it was difficult you know seven days of fast is a is an effort is a, you know they did it and then they stopped always after the first week and there was one monk in the monastery who always continued and he actually did 40 days full every year he did 40 days of fast of not eating anything of in this christian tradition that i'm talking to you about to make sure that you are not doing things proudly and arrogant like Haha, look at me i can fast for 40 days then it just enhances your ego it's a way of boasting it's a way of bragging so to preserve your humbleness everything is done like in the samurai world with the blessing of your abbot like the the abbot of the monastery has to give you a blessing say sir i would like to fast 40 days this year do you allow me bless me to fast 40 days 
And the abbot says, no, 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 you are bragging. Your ego is talking now. You want to show off. Just get and eat with everybody else. Stop pretending that you are, no? So just to keep your humbleness. This monk was fasting 40 days. And he did it without the blessing from the abbot. Like the other said, why is he, does he think he's smarter than us? Does he think he's more spiritual than us? And the abbot says, it's his will. You know, it's like, but did you give him blessing? The abbot said, no, he's just doing it. Did, did you advise him? Yeah, I told him, brother, please don't go there. You know? But he simply says, no, I feel like doing this for Jesus and so on. So this man was like the arrogant, demonized monk of the monastery. And one day the abbot passed away. And the last confession which he did was this. This, this monk always had had blessing. But in secret from him. Like they made a deal with the abbot that he should appear to the rest of the monastery as a renegade and as a selfish person. And secretly the abbot was giving him the blessing. Like, okay, you can do say, 40 days. He didn't do it without blessing. But if he would have done it with blessing, everybody in the monastery would have said how strong this guy is. And they would have envied him. It would have boosted his ego. And then he was so careful about protecting his humbleness and modesty that he was playing a, a lying game with the abbot in which both of them agreed to lie and to make him look guilty and bad just so that he can stay humble. Because then the other monk said, yeah, you are fasting, but you are fasting without a blessing from the abbot. So you are actually shit, you know. You are actually, everybody threw tomatoes at him and he was, and he was doing it with blessing. Never. Only when the abbot died, the abbot confessed, you should know that this guy had my blessing all during his life. This is how humble people live. They protect their humbleness to a level which is inconceivable. No, because for them, the humbleness is the most important thing. No, and they are very careful about this. And humbleness precedes glory, as a great proverb says. Remember that even Jesus, before he became who he became, he was humbled. That's also some people on Manipura in the Jewish environment, they couldn't understand how a person, like if you stand tall, everybody can see that you are a great spiritual authority. But Jesus was a hippie. They beat him, they spit on, they spat on him, they crucified him, he didn't do anything, he stayed like a lamp. And now you are coming and telling me that he has become God? Like that's too much. What kind of God is twisting things in this way? This is the statement that humbleness precedes glory. Like first, you have to be humble, and then glory is given. Glory is a title which comes to those that are truly humble. Like you can bet that Buddha was humble. You can bet that Krishna and many others, they had a natural humbleness. This is coming from the heart. Other values, just to conclude, other values which, uh, I'm sorry I keep you a bit later today, but I want to keep this subject in one. Another thing which creates, because I said anahata creates a typology. Another thing is agape. Agape is a rare word. 
It means that among people, as there is love to God and aspiration, there is a horizontal love which unites all people. That love, in the Greek culture, it was called agape. And agape means the brotherly love that when people meet, they rejoice, they love, they party, they are together with each other. When you live in Manipura like some Zen master in a forest, there is no agape. Christians, the Christian saints and all these people in the heart, the Sufis, Rumi, take others, I'm not only talking about the Christians, or Ramakrishna, they were constantly in agape. Agape means like a party, but not a wild party. It's a party from Anahata. It's a party where there is hug and love and compassion and joy of Anahata type. Anahata chakra gives you true friendship. For me, friendship has always been very important in spirituality. When I was five years old or something, my father told me a story with the hope of generating this thing in me as educational. He told me a story which stayed with me for the rest of my life. There's a story of two people in Greece, in ancient Greece, and one of them is condemned to death for a fault, which he did. The ruler of the city says, you die. And then this man prays to the king of the city, and he says, look, I have a family in another city. They won't even know that I'm dead. My affairs are not in order. Give me a month, and I go home, I put all my affairs, I leave my wife and children in a good condition, and I come back to... The king says, are you crazy? You want me to just let you go for one month, hoping you'll come to be killed? Like nobody would do that. So the king says, I won't let you go unless somebody stands in for you. And if you don't come, I will kill that person instead of you. So this man had a friend. And his friend went to prison and said, sure, I'll stand in for him. In the one month past, this guy appears in the last moment. It's a dramatic end because this other guy is almost getting killed. And then this guy appears running and saying, stop, stop, don't kill him, I'm back, you know, and so on. And he says there was contrary winds, he had to sail through the Greek islands, and he said there were bad weather and so on, I barely made it, but don't kill him. And then the king stopped the execution, and he said, such a friendship cannot die, I cannot let this man die, because I have not seen such friendship anywhere in the world. And he even said, please, you too. Could you have me as your friend? Would you like to add me as your friend? I would like to be friend with people like you. This is the value of friendship. Even Jesus, when he's asked to define love, Jesus says what... He doesn't define the love between a man and a woman. Because that is confusing. Because it contains a lot of Svadhisthana emotional things. So Jesus, when he describes love, he describes it like the love between friends. And he says, what love is there greater than when a man puts his life for his brothers and gives it willingly. This is what love is greatest for Jesus. That's why this thing like the three musketeers or whatever, all for one and all one for all, this is the true friendship which comes from the heart. When you have a friend for whom you would go to prison or die, that's friendship. That's why for me, it's very seldom that I dare to use the name friend. Everybody says, my friend, my friend. I have a friend on Facebook. 
You don't even know them and you call them friends. You wouldn't give them the keys to your car. You wouldn't give them your bank account or your PIN number to your credit card. You wouldn't give them access to have sex to your wife or girlfriend. And you call them friends. In my humble opinion, those are not friends. Those are just acquaintances. They are people that you know and with whom you may have a close relationship. A friend is love. is pure love. And my dear friends, in case you didn't have a friend in your life, I advise you, get quickly one. See if you are capable of friendship. Because it may be that if you don't have friends, first of all, it's you who don't give. You are the ones who don't start the problem. Then you complain, nobody is friends with me. Do you have friends? Was there a person in your life for whom you felt I can die right now? That's where friendship and love really goes. And I was blessed with friendship because of, probably because of this story. I always seeked for friendship. I always values, valued loyal friendship in my life. And I had friends for whom I felt this thing. Many people tell me, I'm practicing this Agama Yoga and I love it. And all this spirituality is crazy and I want more of it. And when I go back to Germany or to London or wherever I go, I feel so alone. All my friends from the old days, they are smoking, they are drinking, they are taking drugs, they are eating meat, they are not interested. And I feel after three months, I crack. I can't take it anymore because it means I live alone in my room and I look at the walls and I howl like a wolf. And I cannot, I, I need to socialize. And when I socialize, I socialize with people that don't support my spiritual efforts. And then I start falling. And then I don't practice yoga anymore. And I don't do this. I have never experienced this. Because when I was young and started practicing spirituality, I had a true friend. And we did yoga together. And I have never felt what it means to be alone in spiritual. I have never been alone. Because I always had a friend. And with this friend... I talked everything, I shared everything, I experienced everything. I, we shared money and tantric sex and everything, everything, completely, completely. And this has meant so much for me. When I look back, I see that part of the fact that I traveled well through yoga was this. That's why I'm telling you, if you don't have a friend who is at this level, try to meditate. Why not? What is the problem? Why not? Are you not capable of such a friendship? Are you not ready to give 110%? Is your ego too big? Are you hypnotized by the sentence, take care of yourself? Because when you have a friend, you don't take care of yourself. You take care of your friend always first the other is more important than you so true friendship is a value of and there is some friendship in manipura like the three musketeers of alexander dumas is not a story on anahata that is a loyalty story of soldiers it's a soldierly friendship like a samurai friendship from manipura and that also can go there but in anahata this friendship 
has the aspect of love. And I could tell you so many things about bhajans, kirtans, prayer, different other ascetics. It is perhaps best if I conclude this whole lecture on the value of anahata. I hope I have convinced you. If you are going to have a spiritual life, put some anahata into it. Spiritual life without anahata can make you grumpy, unhappy, unforgiving to yourself and too tough. If you want to have the joy and the agape and all those values, practice spirituality with a good amount of anahata chakra. And uh, speaking about the value of love, I will simply conclude and then stop this by just reading you the definition of love from Kahlil Gibran, a man with a great heart. Nobody can write this unless they feel it in their heart. And uh, it was not only Kahlil Gibran. I could read the whole night to you what Rumi says about love. Rumi had one of the most overwhelming heart chakras that I have seen in my life. You can see the poem of the heart of Omar Khayyam, of the famous Omar Khayyam, the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, a great Persian poet and astronomer. You can, so there is some Anahata Vishuddha there because of his passion for astronomy and for the heavens. You can read Hafiz and other poets, like just not to stay in the Christian world, but to go to the Sufi world. You can read the poems of love of Kabir, and of other mystical poets of India, of Laleshwari and great mystics, like everywhere where there was bhakti, everywhere where there was the path of the heart, there appeared so much richness about what comes from the heart. Kaklil Gibran is well known, and almost all of you must have heard this at least once in your life. It's his definition of love, and he is qualified. He knows what he's talking about. When love beckons to you, follow him, though his ways are hard and steep. The ways of love are hard and steep. Never forget this. Nobody says it's going to be easy. Like, think about Jesus' life, which is a life of love, and read the life of Rumi and others and see, was it easy? No. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but it's going to be paradise. And when his wings enfold you, Yield to him, though the sword hidden among his pinions may wound you. There is a sword of love. There is blood. There is pain. And when he speaks to you, believe in him. Today, people don't even dare to believe. You know, somebody is telling you, I love you. and I don't know. Uh, no, like we hold back from love. We don't even believe in love. Though his voice may shatter your dreams as the north wind lays waste the garden. Because it's not from Zvadistana, it's from Anahata. Your dreams are coming from Zvadistana. But love will wake you up to the actual reality of love. For even as love crowns you, so shall he crucify you. It's a clear allusion to Jesus who was crucified and had a crown on his head, a crown of thorns. So love crowns you and crucifies you. But after the crucifixion, there comes eternal life, right? So, it's a good path. Even as he is for your growth, so is he for your pruning. 
because all the things of the ego will have to be destroyed. Love is not tolerating those. Even as he ascends to your height and caresses your tenderest branches that quiver in the sun, like on a tree, so shall he descend to your roots and shake them in their clinging to the earth. Because love takes you to God, and then you cannot cling to the earth. Because the earth is your attachment to the physical body and to the physical life. And love will make you let go. You have to let go from this gross attachment. Like sheaves of corn, he gathers you unto himself. He threshes you to make you naked. He sifts you to free you from your husks. He grinds you to whiteness. He kneads you until you are pliant. And then he assigns you to his sacred fire that you may become sacred bread for God's sacred feast. All these things shall love do unto you that you may know the secrets of your heart and in that knowledge become a fragment of life's heart. Like he describes the process of producing flour and then bread and it's tough from the standpoint of the grain of wheat the grain of wheat gets crushed grinded kneaded and everything and it becomes bread it becomes the bread which sits on the altar it's the bread for god so to for you to become the bread of god love has to beat you like a schnitzel no love has a big hammer and beats you like for schnitzel, because you are too tough, you are too resilient, you are not surrendering, you have to let go. But if in your fear, there's a beautiful paragraph, this one, because it shows the misunderstanding of love as some superficial form of joy. But if in your fear, you should seek only love's peace and love's pleasure, people think, oh, it's going to be peace and pleasure then it is better for you that you cover your nakedness and pass out of love's threshing floor into the seasonless world where you shall laugh, but not all your laughter, and weep, but not all of your tears. Like, when you don't accept the love with its pain, you just take half of love. You don't understand what all the love is. All the love is something which gives joy and tears. And then he says, you will laugh but it will be only half of your laughter. You'll never go to the bottom of things. You will live superficially because you are afraid of the pain. You are afraid of the tears which come from there. Love gives not but itself and takes not but from itself. Love possesses not, nor would it be possessed. For love is sufficient unto love. When you love, you should not say, God is in my heart but rather I am in the heart of God. And, this is a beautiful sentence also, think not you can direct the course of love. Like, I want to love this way, I don't want to love. You don't think you can direct the course of love. For love, if it finds you worthy, directs your course. Love is God. You don't control love. Love is like a river that carries your life. So it's a blessing. That's why we don't shut the door in the face of love. When love comes, you have to be available and to say, yes, yes, God, yes. There's only yes to love, always. Love has no other desire but to fulfill itself. But if you love and must needs have desires, let these be your desires. To melt and be like a running brook that sings its melody to the night, to know the pain of too much tenderness, 
to be wounded by your own understanding of love and to bleed willingly and joyfully. To wake at dawn with a winged heart and give thanks for another day of loving. To rest at the noon hour and meditate love's ecstasy. To return home at eventide with gratitude. And then to sleep with a prayer for the beloved in your heart and the song of praise upon your lips. This is a wonderful mixture in which love in a human world is transfigured into a mystical path. This poem of Khalil Gibran is half written for mortals and half written for immortals. It's somewhere there on the limit where human beings cross from the little to the universal to the unconditional. Concluding, I'm simply, I hope I managed to make you understand that Anahata Chakra is a forgotten value. It's very declining in the modern world. Don't let yourself be influenced by that. Many people today, when they choose some religion, they choose Buddhism or something, precisely because it doesn't force them to love from the heart. It's emotionless in a certain way. We talk about compassion, but compassion is almost abstract. It's a sort of a general goodwill towards all the universe. But this experience of love is coming only through the heart and I'm telling spirituality without the heart is not a full spirituality and in the end of the day it can make you enlightened but in your daily life it will not make you joyful, loving and happy. I always recommend that although your path might not include anahata explicitly you should have some anahata practice and especially those of you who after a month, two months, three months, six months, ten months of yoga, you discover that your heart is not really so open as you thought it was, you should add a bit. It's like you put some spices in your food. Food without salt, without spices, is tasteless. In the moment when you spice it properly, it becomes delicious. The same is with life. Anahata is one of those spices which makes life worth living. And remember, you will not stay in Samadhi all the time. When you will stay in Samadhi all the time, you will leave your body. That will be the time when you leave your body and go. That will be your Maha Samadhi. So as long as you live in the body, cultivate a lot of heart, because heart will make this world bearable. It will make you love yourself, forgive yourself, and all the things which I have said here. Cultivate the virtues of love, humbleness, agape, and all the virtues which come from the heart, which I have mentioned, and try to read again and again these paragraphs about love to see, you know, how would a loving person react now? Life is always challenging us in a million ways. The question is, are we going to react from the heart or are we, are we going to react in another way? How would Jesus react to this and that? Of course, the example of Jesus is not always good because Jesus was a prophet and sometimes he got angry at people breaking the divine laws and so on. So Jesus showed multiple facets to the world. But that Anahata facet, that is the one that we are addressing here. 
And again, if Jesus is not good enough example for you, try to think how would Ramakrishna react? How would Yogananda react? How would Rumi react? Choose one of these great examples of the heart and try to do Samyama, try to identify, to see what is the way of living from the heart. With this, let us conclude for tonight. Sorry that I kept you late, but I wanted, we started late and I wanted to keep it in one single satsang. I'll see you in our future meetings, questions and answers and satsangs. With this, we have finished for tonight.